0: And uh, to introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really yeah.
0: stick, Is that a, that's my introduction over here? <laughs> uh, and are you listening? Oh, and are you listening to Boondoggle? Today's Boondoggle. Today's. Bo- are you listening to today's Boondoggle? Excuse me. <laughs> no, it's today's no, no. Boondoggle. It's not a question.
1: It's like. Yeah, no, I know that. Really I stigma. know that. But yeah. I'm I'm questioning them, not me. <laughs> uh, on what? Domain, Domain Domain, Cleveland Radio. On uh, Domain
0: Cleveland Radio. Yeah, you better so. fucking listen to the boondoggle. I'll come boondoggle your face, you fuck. <laughs> Billy, thank you very much, my friend. I love you. You're a great guy.
2: Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to this intro before the intro of our Today's Boondoggle Radio Show. Uh, As you know, we're a veteran-owned and operated podcast, and this has been an incredibly therapeutic journey for me as a veteran that struggles with PTSD and anxiety. Just getting out and talking to people. But uh, it does cost us some money. So if you feel so obliged to donate to our GoFundMe, we have a GoFundMe under Today's Boondoggle. We also have a Venmo at Today's Boondoggle that you can donate to. Uh, Our Anchor sponsorship at anchor.fm forward slash Today's Boondoggle. Any questions, comments, suggestions, complaints, you can email us at todaysboondoggle at gmail.com. And please follow us on our social media sites at, uh, at today's boondoggle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all your uh, social media platforms. As well as our YouTube channel, our Rumble channel, and our BitChute channel. Please follow, subscribe, comment, and download. And please consider checking out our sponsors. If you uh, support our sponsor, Dream Nutrition, you can receive 10% off your order by using the promo code Boondog10 at checkout. So Dream Nutrition, they're a veteran-owned and operated company as well, so please support them and receive 10% off using the promo code Boondog10. Thanks for your time and thanks for listening. Louder Than Life, September 21st through the 24th in Louisville with Fruit Fighters own, Green Day
0: Tool
1: to enemy, Avenged Sevenfold oh, king, Godsmack Lyn Biscuit, Pantera, Queens of the Stone Age Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, and many more. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com
2: all right,
1: Listen up. Hold on to your seats. Grab your girls. Grab your beer. What's going on? It's Tommy Beck and you're listening to today's This is Mark Metcalf and you are listening to today's Donald with Bailey Radio. You are listening to today's Donald with Bailey. On Domain Cleveland Radio. Yes, Kato Kalen listens to this all the time. Welcome to this Facebook
2: doggo. Now, here's some host.
1: I am Monty Heath, someone Heath, and you are listening to.
0: Today's Boondoggle. Hey, what's up? It's John from Skillet, and you're listening to Today's Boondoggle on Domain Cleveland Radio.
1: What's going on, everybody? It's Bill Bailey with Today's Boondoggle. And real quick housekeeping note, if you're watching us on YouTube or Rumble or BitChute or Odyssey, please hit that follow and subscribe button. And if you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple, Google, uh, you know, whatever podcast platform you uh, listen to us on, please hit that follow and subscribe button so I can continue to bring you the conversations like the one I'm about to bring you today with uh, my good, dear friend, Officer Tom Kelly, retired New York City police officer. Um, Man, uh, so... Quick backstory. I, I met Tom on the 20th anniversary of nine 11, ironically at, uh, the incarceration music festival. And, uh, you know, we hit it off immediately have a lot in common that we'll get into, especially our love for music. But, uh, you know, Tom has a very interesting story and it was ironic that we met on the 20 year anniversary of nine 11. Cause as we'll get into, uh, Tom was, uh, on the force, uh, there in New York city, ground zero. Um, but, uh, Tom, you know, first of all, thank you for, for doing this with me today. Uh, we've been talking about it for a while and, um, you know, usually when I have people on for the first time, I I like to get a background. So do you remember as a little kid originally what you wanted to be when you grew up?
0: Um, yeah, well, uh, First thing is, you know, as, as a real little child, as a toddler, uh, you know, my dad was a Wall Street business executive. So, you know, always said, I'm going to be like my dad, a businessman. Um, but, uh, yeah, one day uh, in the old neighborhood in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, which uh, was at the height of the Colombo Wars at the time, very violent uh, mafia uh, battle going on and uh i'm riding my bike around the block and i saw a dead body in the back seat of a car so i was five or six and and uh i remember seeing the patrol cop uh you know the old walk in the beat cop uh we had one of those ring boxes on the corner the telephone where the cop every half hour would have to call in to see if there's any assignments on his beat and i remember seeing him and uh driving my bike up to him and i said uh got a dead body in a car over there and he's just looking at me and he's shaking his head and he's saying if this is a joke i'm gonna whack you with this stick <laughs> <laughs> and uh i said no mister this is real and uh so he walked back with me he looked in the back seat and he went oh shit <laughs> and then he told me to stay by the car and don't move and then uh uh, next thing you know is, you know, he gets to the call box and within a uh, short time, all these other police cars are showing up. And then, you know, the the gruffy old detectives with the raincoats and uh, they put up this yellow tape around the whole car. And uh, I'm on the other side of that yellow tape. And uh, they told me to stay there because, you know, all the detectives wanted to interview me and uh you know, they, they were talking real nice to me, but I was just looking up to these guys and saying, man, you know, I want to do this. <laughs> you know, when I get big, I want to be a cop. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's when I had it. Uh, yeah, I kind of had that dream. And then uh, about the age of 11, I began working with my dad's brother, uh, catering business in Brooklyn, you know, doing these weddings and stuff. And I was a kitchen helper. And, uh, half of his, you know, part-time staff that he hired on these weekends, uh, were all cops, uh, you know, off duty, uh, employment, making, you know, a little extra money, feed the family, you know, cops never made any good money. And, uh, but, you know, just hearing them talking stories in the kitchen and, uh, you know, they kind of took a liking to me. So they were telling me some pretty off color stories, you know, for a little kid. Uh, I always admired it, you know, and I had a great deal of respect for the people that did that job. And so, uh, I had no plans for college, uh, graduated high school when I was 17. Um, you couldn't become a cop back then until you were 20. So I jumped into the wall street thing, you know, that dad, following dad's footsteps, uh, Uh, But I kept taking the police exam, which back then, uh, uh, 80, 90,000 people would take the NYPD exam for, you know, only four or 5,000 spots that opened up in a four year period. Uh, So, uh, you know, it was, you know, you had to be patient and it was a long wait. But then next thing you know, I'm on Wall Street and I stepped in a huge pile of huge pile of good luck. (laughs) Uh, I was on the commodity exchange, which uh, if people ever remember the movie Trading Places, uh, that insanity, uh, when they're on the trading floor, uh, it's not exaggerated. You know, when Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd are in that trading pit going nuts, uh, that's what I actually used to do. And I was making quite a bit of money. So when the NYPD first called me uh at the age of twenty two, I turned them down. Uh because there you know, I was just I was making 10 times the salary of what a cop was making. So uh but I always still, I still, you know, I pursued it. So then when the next exam came up, I wound up taking all together three exams. Um and then uh Again, I was blessed with foresight because even though I was making quite a bit of money, I saw how Wall Street was changing, where, uh, you know, computers were being introduced. And so uh, they were going to start replacing human beings with computers. And that was as early as uh, the mid to late 80s. And, you know, uh, yeah, I was making good money, but there was no pension. Uh, You know, there was no, uh, you know retirement plans so to speak i was just 27 years old and uh police department called me again luckily for me and so i uh cashed in my chips in wall street and i was able to get in the police academy in july of 1989 nice Uh, and what was was that process like
1: back then i'm sorry what was that process like once you got uh you Uh, know into the police
0: academy back then? Let me, let me tell you something. The process, again, because uh, uh, average was about 80,000 uh, applicants for 4,000 positions. Um, the exam itself, the written exam, uh, it's it's an eighth grader uh, should be able to pass it. Uh, but after that, you know the grueling part, and I'm talking really grueling, is all of the next application processes. Of holy good lord, uh, the psychological exam uh, is is about eight hours long. A written exam, and you got to sit there, and I'm talking thousands upon thousands of questions that are just repeated over and over again. Um, and that's how they weed out the nut jobs. Uh, those <laughs> those tests are all. Um, I I forget the actual names of the exams. One's you know, Minnesota something or other, uh, but these are all basic uh, written exams. That once the computer puts all this stuff together, they can tell who's a nut job, who's violent. Uh, you, you know, it's it's pretty thorough so they get rid of probably a third of the candidates right off the bat from uh, the results of the psych uh but if you pass the psych exam then there's the uh the uh, psychological interview um which you know they they try to really get under your skin they try to get you uh to lose your cool huh right and you know of course that you know I can see how helpful that is in picking out candidates because you know you're going to be a cop and uh, you know you can't lose your cool. Yeah. You know when you lose your cool, uh, that's when um, bad things happen. You know, and uh, they're looking for the people that have uh, you know a good sense of decency, can control uh, chaos and uh where i was really fortunate is i grew up amongst chaos uh the catering business you know uh you know people that work in kitchens people who work in catering will tell you it's it's five straight hours of chaos yeah um and then i'm on the commodity exchange where it was a daily dose of chaos (laughs) and i was you know i was seasoned into that whole thing so um you know uh yeah, I held up very well during the psychological interview.
1: Yeah, just rolling, rolling by as a kid and finding a dead body and not freaking
0: out, and you know. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That would that would scar a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of children would really be devastated by that. Yeah, um, you know. Uh, and again, I'm old, old school Brooklyn, where I, I, one of the first funerals that I did go to. Uh, you know, a family member funeral. And again, as a very young child, um, they used to lay the bodies out in the house. You know, there Mm. were no, you know, not in the funeral home, but an Irish wake, you know, the body, as soon as you walked in the the front door, the body would be in the porch on ice and then everybody would be inside and uh, just hanging out, drinking. And, you know, so I think that was my uh, first dead body that I saw with yeah, uh, right. a relative sitting on a, a bucket of ice in a porch. <laughs> um, yeah, old school Brooklyn stuff, man. It's uh, yeah. great memories. Great, great memories. Hey, um, uh, r-
1: real quick, too, because uh, you, you mentioned the catering business, and then that, that reminded me of a little story that you shared with me working the catering business when they were filming uh, The Warriors. Oh, yeah, Coney Allen. Yeah,
0: I share a little bit of that story? Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, my uncle's catering business, it was called uh, candlelight caterers. And, uh, my, my uncle owned a deli, a nice, uh, German deli. We're, we're Irish, but he had a German deli over in uh, mill base in Brooklyn. And we operated out of the, that, out of that deli itself and, you know, load up all the food and on trucks and we had chafing dishes and that sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, that was the very first time my uh, Experienced uh, being on the other side of the tape again, um, with uh, you know a film crew, and they're doing you know the Coney allen Warriors scene. I couldn't get up close to anything, and I don't, you know, if if you ever saw a movie and television productions being made, it's like eight hours of waiting around for five minutes of action. So yeah. uh, you know, we're just there to feed the crew and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, you know, again, I recall that, you know, my uncle told me, you know, these are movie stars and you don't talk to them. You just serve them. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. You know, that sort of thing. And again, that's where I learned, you know, a, quite a bit of self-control. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and the funny thing is, is, you know, uh, I, again, grew up not far from Coney Allen as a child and, uh. Coney Island was extremely dangerous place. Uh, It was crime ridden. It was, it was, it was as bad as you would imagine in that movie, the warriors. It was actually a little bit worse. Um, Yeah. When my, my folks, uh, when my folks first split up and I was eight years old and I wanted to learn how to ice skate and Coney Island Still has an ice skating rink there. It was it was there from the early 70s when I was a kid. And at eight years old, I used to uh take a bus by myself down to Coney Island. And uh it was free ice skating on Saturday morning. So that's where I was able to go. My mom gave me two bucks, and bus fare was 35 cents each way. And so I had a dollar thirty that would buy me a hot dog, a condition, a soda. For my lunch, and I get to skate for four hours. And uh, so, when I was nine, coming out of the skating rink, me uh, and my friend, same age as me, my friend Eddie, um, we got robbed at golf club point <laughs> by a twelve-year-old who threatened to crush in our skulls, and uh, had to give them. Uh, a- a- actually, had to fork over, you know, the bus fare to this kid. And uh, he he took off with the money. And again, uh, now I'm looking for help. Who do I go for? I'm looking for the police. And so uh, me and my friend are wandering the streets of Coney Island, which, again, it was really seedy back then. Um, Saturday morning, there was nothing open. Uh, And then just happens that we look down the block and there's the 60th precinct the Coney Island station house. And we walk in there and again, you know, looking at all these cops and really impressed. I mean, here I am nine years old and look at these men and, you know, like, how can we help you kid? And told them what happened. And they sent the patrolman to walk us down to the bus stop and to put us on the bus for free. So uh, while I'm standing on the bus stop there with this, you know, and he was one of those sharp cops with the, dress jacket with the high collar and all of a sudden it's the the old like French connection undercover car comes pulling up to the bus stop and saying to the cop what's going on what are you doing with these kids and he tells him what happened and so these two detectives say hey you want to jump in the back of the car and see if we can find this guy and I was like oh yeah (laughs) yeah so we get in the back and uh we're driving up and down the streets and they're saying just look for him you know see if you see him and uh so they're driving now they drive on the boardwalk and i was like wow this is really cool you know (laughs) car driving on the boardwalk with these undercover cops you know me and my friend were like slapping each other like look how cool this is (laughs) and then uh they drive down this pier a fishing pier And at the end of the fishing pier was a snack bar. And uh, they say, come on, let's go look in the snack bar. And as as soon as they open the door, there's the kid leaning against the wall, tapping the golf club against the wall. (laughs) So they put the cuffs on the kid. Uh, They put him in the front seat between the two of them. Me and my friend go back to the police station. Next thing you know is... They're calling my mother. They're calling his father. They come down to the police station. Oh, my God, what's going on? Um, And so, you know, there I am, again, being interviewed by all these, you know, uh, detectives. And, you know, I was so impressed because I was a little child, but they were talking to me, you know, as though I was a young adult. And you know, and I've just given them crisp, clean answers. And uh, yeah, so the the end story is is that actual this actually went to a trial. So at the age of uh, ten, you know, I was uh, had to testify in uh, Brooklyn court, Brooklyn family court, and uh, I was being grilled by uh, a defense attorney, and you know, just tell the truth. That's all I was told to do. Just tell the truth. And as much as this defense attorney was trying to like, you know, he had something against this guy or, you know, then it got into a racial thing. you know, is is it because he's black? (laughs) I said, no, he he put a golf club to my head said he was going to crush my skull if I didn't get my bus money. So, so I actually learned at the age of 10 how to sit and testify at a trial that all you got to do is tell the truth. You won't get rattled if you tell him the truth, no matter how much a defense attorney. I mean, here's an adult defense attorney trying to rattle a 10-year-old, and he couldn't do it. Yeah. Because they told the truth. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically it. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, and I haven't thought about that in the longest time uh, because, uh, and this, this this is taught in the police academy. I'm sure, you know, most cops will agree with this. Maybe in different parts of the country, it's different. But in the NYPD, uh, the average amount of trials that a cop will testify at throughout his entire career is only two to three. Because most things get plea bargained, um, you know, where it doesn't go to that whole full trial thing. You know, you may testify at the grand jury. You know dozens you know, scores uh, hundreds of times um but when it comes to a trial that's that's you know uh very unusual and in my career though i uh testified at fourteen trials of arrests that I made
1: uh, yeah well, I wanted to ask you then about you know the the police academy back then, what uh, it was like you know.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Getting back to that. So again, you know, I told you about the psychological part, Yeah. but then, uh, they have what's called the applicant investigation, uh, section. Okay. So these are all these detectives and, you know, really sharp detectives. They have to actually go through everything with you. I mean, and what, what they love to do. Uh, now I lived in Staten Island, New York and, uh, you know, which is a borough in New York City. My investigator, his office was way at the northern part of the Bronx. You know, the most difficult commute for anyone from Staten Island is to get to the north end of the Bronx. And uh, they would call me and say, uh, yeah, we need your tax returns from uh, last year. And uh, we need it now. So get it together, get in your car and bring it to us right now. And if you ever failed to provide a document, that was it. You were just, okay, you're off the list, you know? So uh, I'd get in my car, drive all the way up to the Bronx, take me two and a half hours, give them what they asked for. And they said, oh, did we say last year? No, we meant, uh, no, we meant 1987. Go back home and pick that up and bring it back to us. We need it tonight and again that's you know the screwing with you type of thing yeah because believe it or not they're preparing you for what happens when you're a cop (laughs) you know these are real things and the frustrations and they basically try to get you to quit you know so um then the academy itself uh is something that um I mean, a complete wake up call for me because like I said, I I never got, I never went to college. And so this is college level, uh, classroom learning. Um, I hadn't had any kind of physical exercise (laughs) in 10 years, uh, other than, you know, standing on my feet in the commodity exchange, uh, for six hours a day. And, um, 12 ounce curls <laughs> that, that, that's the most exercise I had in 10 years and there they are the first day where you gotta you gotta run a mile and a half uh you gotta do all these push-ups I'm talking about the first day that you're in that gymnasium and uh holy good lord um the things the you know the sit-ups the uh, exercise I never even heard of but you know the way that they make it sound is if you can't do this stuff today just quit you know people actually got up and walked out um and it, it, it's uh exactly like the military because they say this is basically a paramilitary organization which police departments are it is a paramilitary organization whereas you know you have to be there on time you've got to stand at attention you got to learn how to march you got to learn how to salute uh you you better have uh you know well groomed if you have any five o'clock shadow they will they will turn around and tell you to go home you know what you don't have a razor um yeah it it's, was it, it was strict yeah it's funny you say that
1: too because uh i went for a, a friend of mine his father was a police officer just recently passed away
0: um sorry that,
1: at the the services yesterday uh, for him, you know, to support my friend and, and well, first they had, you know, a, the police, uh, a Cleveland police officer there to give, you know, final salute and all that. And then they, they, they did the motorcycle escort when we went to the grave site and everything. Um, I ended up getting asked to be one of the pallbearers cause not all their pallbearers were there. So that was quite an honor, but they probably displayed this newspaper article of when he was on the force and he he had gotten to like a lawsuit with the, with the police officers about first, you know, it went from a mustache to a full beard. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I'll have to send you a copy of, I took a picture of it. I'll have to send you a copy of it, but it was kind of funny that, that was like, you know, he ended up being suspended six months, but then, you know, ended up getting obviously his job back and everything, but it was kind of funny how he fought fought with the uh with the regs back then you know he's like
0: i clean my beard clean you know but <laughs> as a matter of fact yeah that's funny uh uh we had what's called uh the patrol guide which we had to memorize um well picture uh a book with close to four thousand pages in it uh you know, no no way to memorize, but they hang that over your head if you ever do anything wrong. And when it came to that grooming thing, uh, you know, because they tell you that like in the first week. And everybody was really confused because uh, they said you could have sideburns down to uh, the ear lobe. No, not uh, no. Above the ear lobe, the mid ear. Uh, definitely no gross mutton chops. And everybody's just like, "What the hell is a gross mutton chop?" <laughs> because that goes back to the seventies, you know, where they yeah. had these sideburns that went down, and you know, they looked like pieces of pork hanging off your ear. Um, <laughs> so you know, they never up they never updated. You know, a lot of the things from the the sixties and the seventies when this guide was written. So yeah, that's really funny. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, honest with you, I, I know a lot of cops that uh, are really upset about, uh, you know, that cops were allowed to have beards now. Uh, you know, during the whole COVID thing, for some reason, everyone, you know, became uh, lumberjack again, and uh, they allowed the cops to start wearing beards. And uh, truthfully, um, it—I don't know. I mean, I'm old school so yeah. me i think you look a lot more professional you know uh clean shaven uh i think you know it it just commands a little bit more of uh respect if you present yourself as a professional yeah I got well, it. yeah i agree i
1: agree
0: yeah but um you know i'll leave that up to anybody's you know opinion but
1: um yeah so, you know, after you process through the uh academy and all that and you're on the force, um what would you say some of your uh, you know, career highlights or experiences were?
0: <laughs> well, uh I was I was very very fortunate. Like I was saying earlier that uh my uncle uh employed a lot of these uh these cops in his catering business, and the one that I became most friendliest with, uh, his name was uh, John McDonald, and he was actually a childhood friend of my uncle's. They went to kindergarten together, and, you know, as adults, uh, you know, they, they stayed best friends for life. And he, uh, even though his rank was only lieutenant, uh, he was so not not just so well-liked, but he was so influential. Um, he was able to place me in the best precinct out of 77 precincts in uh, the city of New York. Yeah, he put me in the best one, and it's called Midtown South Precinct. And uh, it covers the area of Times Square, Madison Square Garden, Grand Central, Port Authority Bus Terminal, Uh, This was the old Times Square, the old 42nd Street that was really uh, super seedy, (laughs) real, real seedy, Um, but without a doubt the best place in the world to work. Uh, It was less than one square mile, but more than 4 million people a day passed through that one square mile. Uh, So you encountered everything from you know the the corporate CEOs of uh, uh you know huge corporations we had all the modeling agencies on seventh avenue we had the garment <laughs> center but we still had 42nd streets and uh you know the birth of hip-hop uh which was 50 years ago but uh was really in its heyday uh on you know the area 42nd street all the the Current rappers love to uh be be seen up and down 42nd Street. So I would often see Run DMC, I would often see uh Public Anime, um Living Color, uh Corey Glover <laughs> used to hang out across the street there and keep an eye on me. Um and so uh yeah, it's so one day and I'm a brand new rookie. And you know, I'm standing there in my clean uniform all by myself, and I worked the uh, the midnight tour uh, which <laughs> you had to stand by yourself and it was it was nutty back then. Uh, but earlier, you know around midnight it was still streets were packed, packed in Times Square. and so all of a sudden I see uh you know this group coming up the block towards me, and uh holding one of those gigantic uh, boombox radios, ghetto blasters, whatever they called them, and blasting this music, which, you know, I could care less, and uh, big shoulder-held video cameras, and uh, it was uh, Flavor Flav, doing some impromptu street video thing, which I used to see all the time. You know, these guys would just go out and, you know, they're doing street videos which i could care less um but as flavor starts getting real close to me and i'm just looking and observing uh, and all of a sudden he throws his hands right up into my face and fuck the police (laughs) his hands came within an inch of my face and all I saw were two hands coming up my face. So I just reacted with one quick punch. Boof! And that flaved down onto his ass. And uh, I grabbed his clock. He had the big, giant clock. And I just started whacking him over the face with this clock. Unprofessional. <laughs> a little bit unprofessional. Um, So I'm hitting him over the head with the clock. And he goes, I, you want to know what time it is, Flav? Because I knew his expression. You know, what time is it? Uh so you wanna know what time it is, Flav? It's Tom Kelly time now, motherfucker. <laughs> and I'm hitting him in the face. And I, all of a sudden I I I I come to the realization I saw those video cameras, you know, the big shoulder. Well, these guys are just videotaping the whole thing and screaming, police brutality, Flav, we got out on tape and shit. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I'm done for. I'm gonna get fired for, for this idiot. I'm gonna get fucking fired for this. <laughs> um, uh, uh, And listen to Flav's credit so he jumps up and he goes yo 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 he goes get this shit on camera man get this shit he goes I assaulted this officer I assaulted him he did nothing wrong you see I hit him in his face he goes I deserve to be locked up he goes I was resisting he goes so this is all bullshit the cop did nothing wrong and he turns around, he puts his hands behind his back and he's like, I'm sorry, Officer Kelly. And so with that apology and all, I just said, Hey, Flav, thanks for manning up. I said, why don't we just shake on it? You go your way, I'll go mine. And we shook on it. <laughs> he dusted himself off. And uh <laughs> and I said, thanks for doing that. And he goes, he goes, he goes, no. He goes, he goes, thank you for being uh, a stand-up cop. And uh, it it was so funny because uh, a lot of people saw that, besides it being on videotape. Yeah, is that video still floating around out there? I looked for it, and it never went public. Never went public. Uh, Flav did the right thing, man. Um, And then... uh, uh, He showed you some flavor of love. Yeah, he he gave me some flavor of love. Now, 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 picture this, though. So 30 years later, of all places, uh, I'm driving across the country. I'm just doing, you know, one of these. After I retired, I just wanted to do one of those uh, self-searching 16,000-mile uh, drives all by myself around the country. And I find myself in Boise, Idaho, and uh, I needed to buy uh, a little more clothing. So I went to a local shopping mall, and I'm strolling to a shopping mall in Boise, Idaho, okay, in 2012. And who do I see walking towards me? It's Flavor Flav. No I way. I kid you not. I kid you not. Flavor And I'm just looking. I, I, I'm i scratching my eyes. I'm like, I'm not drinking. Uh, I haven't taken it. And what the hell is Flav doing here? And so I go walking up to him, and I'm like, Flav. And he's... He, he was, he was feeling comfortable and he just looking at me and he like, yo brother, how are you? And I said, Flav, let me ask you a question. I said, do you remember when you were young back in the day on 42nd street and some cop beat you over the face with your clock? And he's like, yo man, he goes, he goes, that shit was funny, man. He goes, did you see that shit happen? <laughs> and I said, Flav, I took out my my shield, my ID card, you know, from the police department. I said, Flav, that was me. And he just looks at me and he just starts hugging me and he gives me a kiss on the cheek. And he's like, much love, man, much love. He goes, You are a good cop. He goes, You should go teaching academies, man, and teaching how to people, you know, to just <laughs> let, it, let the let the brothers go if they apologize. <laughs> and i just like, you know, hey, yeah. The, most people would have probably thrown cuffs on them, and, you know, oh, look who I the Flavor Flav. Uh, hey, listen, you know, as far as I was concerned, shit happens. Uh, there was a lot more dangerous things going on in the streets. Uh, you know, a lot more people needed the service of us other than, you know, locking up some bullshit uh, rapper for doing something stupid. Uh, yeah. But that's what made the whole job so great, though is so many people do so many stupid things and it's just funny i to me you know uh i learned to laugh at everything you know because uh best therapy in the world just learn to laugh and laugh at everything uh so yeah that was that was uh 30 years after the fact and there i am meeting up with Flav, funny as hell nice and then like during your
1: time on the force too like uh what were some of the things, I mean, you know, because New York City, you know, there's histories always seems to be being made there. You know, even before we get to, you know, uh nine eleven, like what were some of the things when you were on the force that was uh, what was hot issues?
0: Well, hot issues as far as um, the riots, um, uh, you know, the, of course, you know, the social issues type of thing. Even though if you work in one command, you know, one set command. uh, And, you know, I was, you know, in midtown Manhattan. um, But if, you know, something sparks up big within the city, uh, you know, you got to jump and you got to go, you know, to uh, wherever part of the city. So uh, one of the first riots that I went to, uh, there was uh, the first riot in Tompkins Square Park was in 1988 a year before i became a cop but then uh in 1990 uh they wanted to have the two-year anniversary of the riot uh so back then it was the east village of new york uh it was full of all the anarchists the uh uh the punk rockers basically the, the the later fringe of the punk rockers and you know still wearing you know the uh you know, the New York City hardcore guys and uh, anti cop, anti establishment, this, that, and the other thing. And the first Tompkins Square Park riot had a lot of cops uh, got in trouble because it was the first time that video cameras were used, where uh, even though they videotaped and then they edited out, and I'll be honest with you, they edited out, you know, all of their actions and then just showed you know the news just kept flashing you know cops struggling with people and you know police abuse and that was the first time where you know it was all over the news nationwide you know look at the brutality of these cops in Tompkins square park uh again it was all very edited footage because all the cops basically got um you know they exonerated because uh at the trials the full tapes were shown Mm. but um yeah that was my first riot uh was in 90 when they had the two-year celebration and uh it was not as bad as the first one but it it was pretty bad where i had a, a door thrown at me that was they lit a door on fire with gasoline and uh you know a group like six of them picked it up and they threw it at the front line that i was standing on and um you know wow. rocks bottles being thrown um and then you know i wound up having to stay down there for about a week and so uh you know i have all of these uh and these are people that i i go to concerts with now <laughs> right that uh would walk up jackbooted nazi and spit on me and you know, that, you know, just, uh, nah, you know, just people get caught up in all this wacky, wacky stuff. And, um, you know, but it could be quite dangerous. I mean, you know, using bottles being launched off the roof that yet. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I just learned to be, you know, you had to just be brave, you just had to be brave.
1: Yeah. Um, and then- And during your time too, was there any like, uh, you know, big, uh, cases that were making the news a lot too, that, uh, you were involved with, or just were going on in New York city around your time?
0: Well, um, okay. So I had, I had a Lieutenant who was, um, you know, and this is my midnight Lieutenant as a cop and, uh, his name was Jimmy Roberts, um, probably the most brilliant uh crime investigator probably the most brilliant uh old school cop um and he loved to share his knowledge with people that were willing to learn and so he never forced you to learn anything but um, a lot of people called him a kook because you know uh, and this is the what I'm specifically getting to, um, there was a group of uh, professional burglars, and I'm talking not limited to Midtown Manhattan. I mean these guys uh, the FBI had an entire task force after these guys. They, uh, they called them Yaks and Yaks stood for Yugoslavian, Albanian, Croatian, and Serbians. And this is, you know, uh, during the uh, Croatian-Serbian wars and uh, all of these things that were going on in Eastern Europe. And so these uh, guys were super professional burglars that were hitting uh, from Hawaii to uh, New York, Uh, all big jewelry firms. Um, They would only go after, you know, uh, safes that they could break into, you know, 5 million plus you know, in gold, uh, diamonds, et cetera. And these guys were the best. And so so they had hit uh, quite a few places in midtown Manhattan because another thing besides garments and modeling were jewelry manufacturing uh, of New York City. Uh, So we had a lot of these places that had millions of dollars worth of gold in their safes. So every time that, one of these places got hit, my lieutenant would grab us and say, the Hugo's hit, the Hugo's hit, and just drag me and a couple other guys that wanted to learn, and, uh, you know, basically teaching us how to do detectives work. You know, I mean, detectives were involved, but, you know, we were the first on the scene. We were always first on the scene. So how to preserve the scene, you know, how to uh, preserve evidence, uh, how to secure the tools, et cetera, and so forth. And so uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, sometimes he would be away on vacation and he would call the desk at 2 o'clock in the morning and he'd say, uh, you know, I-, I just woke up from a dream and I think the Yugo's are going to hit tonight. So everybody, stop what you're doing and go on Yugo alert. And, you know, so everyone just thought he was a wackadoodle, you know. Um, but uh, because of the way he trained this man, uh, one night, um, yeah, I was in the burglary unit and one night, uh, got the call that there's an alarm going off. at Thomas Gold, I still remember the name of the place on East 38th street, Tamis Gold. And, uh, we raced over there and it was just a burglar alarm and we pull up and there's a, uh a private security company that gets hired uh, and it was home security. I still remember home security, uh, you know, and 95% of all of these ringing alarms and silent alarms are all, are all, uh, fake, not fake, but, you know, tripped by uh, a rat in the building, uh, high winds, lightning, 95% of these alarms are all just nonsense. So you know the the security guards are waving to us, saying, "No, nah, it's nothing." And so uh, because of the way that this guy trained us, said, "No, we don't treat anything at any of these jewelry. We don't take anyone's word. We're going to see for ourselves." And we secured the entire block. We had four units in the burglary unit. We went to each each place that there's no escape for anybody because they were you know we knew that they always went to rooftops. Uh, you know they would never escape out the front door they would never escape out the back door they'd go to rooftops for another building so we knew their uh their routine from all this past uh, experience well sure enough uh, we went in there and the first thing we didn't let the security guards go we we secured them and uh they didn't like the way we we're treating them but uh you know said you you guys stand right here and sure enough uh one of the units, we got we got these uh, we got the safe burglars, uh, but then we realized you know that the security guards were in on it as well, yeah. and they always had been in on it. Um, so we wound up arresting uh, these two guys, and then the next thing you know is major case, which maybe you see on TV. Uh, you know uh, <laughs> the major case uh, squad and the law and order thing. Uh, Those guys are real, and they're they're really super sharp, old-school detectives, and they came racing down, and they were chasing these guys for 15 years. And it turns out I locked up the leader of the entire crew of over 60, uh, the professional safe burner, where uh, they use magnesium burning rods. Uh, These things get up to 10,000 degrees. They go through a, a, a steel safe, like a knife through butter. I got the security guards. Uh, Turns out one of the security guards was also when he was not doing security, he was robbing banks and he uh, did a murder uh, while running out of a a bank robbery. He did. And uh, the fourth security guard who we got to flip and they lessened all the charges on him to a misdemeanor, Uh, believe it or not, he got in the police academy. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> nice,
1: no, but uh,
0: yeah, we, we we were able. to w- – One of the major case guys would not retire until these guys got caught, and uh, we FBI came in. I mean, it was it, it was on a cover of like Newsweek magazine or something like that. Uh, that. You know, so that was a that was probably one of the coolest arrests. Uh, that I never really got any credit for, but I I didn't care about the credit. Uh, It's because I know what I did and it's a great story. And, uh, um, and I learned a hell of a lot on how to rob high-end jewelry. uh, safes. So uh, if you wonder where I get all my concert money from, uh, (laughs) no, I I get, I get that from my pension.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, what about, uh, like during your time, you know, working the force, being, you know, you, you know, a lot of people uh, that if all my friends I meet from New York city, there's like this pride, you know, everybody's, you know, it, it, I mean, it's it, all across the country, whatever town it is, you know, they get behind their football teams and stuff like that, but there's this like different level, like type of New York city pride that uh, I've met with my friends that have, have grown up and lived in, in New York. And you being one of those people, like, what did you notice when you're as part of the force, like the evolution of, of the city of New York um, from, you know, talking about the days of CD, you know, Coney Island being very seedy, the, the Thompson square riots. Did you ever see any like uh, part of the time when you were in there where the city was like on its way, like really to clean up and, and things were looking good and going well. Yeah, I I,
0: I could actually give a very good explanation for that. Um, Okay, so uh, he doesn't have a great reputation right now. Uh, But (laughs) besides that, uh, but they they said it was Mayor Giuliani cleaned up Times Square. Mayor Giuliani cleaned up the city of New York. You know, uh, and okay, so I got to give credit where credit's due is, um, you know, everyone thinks that he was the one that put the fire under the asses of the cops. That is completely false. Um, now, he okay, so let me explain how the turnaround actually began in the early 90s when uh, Mayor Giuliani was finally elected. Uh, the problem wasn't the cops. We were always making the arrests. We were always, cops were always doing their job the job was never being done by the criminal justice system. Mm. Okay, so um prosecutors would, you know, just dismiss anything that was minor, okay? And they would just, you know, uh time served, you know, because uh back then if you made an arrest for something simple, a shoplifting arrest, somebody would actually be in the tombs <laughs> which is uh part of Central Booking in New York City, they might be in there for three days before they even saw a judge for a shoplifting charge, which was ludicrous. So you know, it would be time served, you know, and out the door, you know, dismissed time. You spent three days in, in this horrible the tombs in lower Manhattan. That's punishment enough, which I kind of agree with. Um but this is where the cleaning up needed to be done. And it needed to be done by uh telling the prosecutors, listen, you're going to begin to prosecute everything that is brought into you by the police. Okay. You're going to do something. You're going to do your job. He went to the judges and he said to the judges, if you still want to sit on the bench, because you know, the city appoints, they elect some judges, some judges are appointed, etc. If you know what's good for you, you're going to do your job. Uh, and, He expanded, you know, he fixed the jail system, you know, because and, you know, because that's where the whole thing was broken. Uh, If you if you don't have a proper jail to put these people into, okay, then the judge got nowhere to send them. And the prosecutor is not going to demand a judge to send somebody to a jail where there's overcrowding, there's mismanagement, et cetera, and so forth. So you got to fix the problem at the top end. And that's what Giuliani did, because he had the background as a U.S. attorney. You know, he was a U.S. attorney for Southern District of New York. And uh, so he had, you know, he he knew how to work the judicial system. Once that judicial system was fixed. okay, our job became streamlined. It became easier because now when we would make an arrest, uh, it, it was it was it was done the proper way. We bring it to the prosecutor, the prosecutor, you know, no longer slap on the wrist. You know, if, if you do something, um, one of the things was panhandlers and window washers. Okay. A complaint of New York city, you know, everybody always screamed about it. So he said, okay, they're going to all get a minimum 15 days in jail. And so sure enough, you know, that problem went away um you know and then all all of these minor crimes that you addressed you know you would get a guy uh turnstile jumper and you'd grab him you know no longer just let him go or just give him a ticket no you had to id him run his name before you even issue a ticket and next thing you know is you're clearing warrants for murders and robberies (laughs) because these dolts who who did a murder? They know they wanted for murder, but they'll jump over a turnstile in front of a cop. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know that's why if they weren't stupid, our job really would be hard. Um, but that that's what began to happen. So you know, once you start addressing all of the minor stuff, um, you know, of course, you know, you need the the sharp detectives, you know, to investigate you know, all the major crimes that are going on there. But if you're focused on all these minor things, the, the cleanup of New York City is living proof that it happened. And I saw that entire transformation. It was amazing going from, you know, uh, 42nd Street, where it was just nothing but, uh, I mean, disgusting uh, porno, live porno shows that I'm talking disgusting because, I mean, Two there were things that I've seen that no human being should ever see. I, I would feel like ripping my eyes out of my head and, and washing them in Brillo before putting them back in. Uh, I've got nothing against, you know, personal pornography or, you know, uh, you know, live. Listen, the, the shit that went on back then, uh, there's stories that I don't think, I don't know if they're allowed on your podcast <laughs> um, um, I mean, really, I've seen things, uh, that I tell these stories about things that I actually witnessed and, um, people just say, I have to be making it up because it, it just, it can't be true. It can't be true. And, uh, there was some really sick people out there and I'm not talking just, you know, the street homeless guys, I'm talking about, you know, I'm driving down a real dark block, which is all just clothing factories that, you know, are shut overnight. And, you know, the they have the outdoor parking lots in between these giant industrial buildings. And I'm driving and I see uh, this beautiful Rolls Royce, which did not belong there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, with the lights on, the engine running. Uh, But I saw a guy um, over the hood of this Rolls Royce. So it looks like he's being robbed. So, you know, I take this quick turn into uh, the parking lot, you know, put the bright lights on. My partner and I jump out because now, you know, we got whoever is doing this robbery, we got him trapped. And, uh... This guy looks up with this shot with a shocked look on his face, and uh, we go rushing around, and he's getting spanking, Okay, um, he's wearing like this four thousand dollar suit. He's got a hundred thousand dollar Rolex, friggin' presidential on his wrist. Uh, he uh, uh, he's getting spanked by this girl. I, I remember her name, Sandra Cook. Uh, she was uh she's probably dead by now, so I could say her name. She, well, she's gotta be dead a long time. She was a skeletonly green skinned, no tooth crackhead uh wow. that was covered in impetigo and covered with uh AIDS uh sores. Wow. And he paid her fifty bucks. To spank him and say, uh, and keep on saying, daddy's been a bad boy, daddy's been a bad boy. Uh, (laughs) I I had arrested Sandra Cook a couple of times on some really very big uh, crack arrests. Uh, She always got out because she would always flip on uh, the street dealers. Um, But she she was amazed too. (laughs) She said, he he gave me $50. So mm-hmm. I, had And so I'm asking this guy for his ID and stuff, and he's just trying to race away. Uh, but, yeah, it turns out he was uh, CEO of one of the top top banking institutions. Not yeah, just in yeah. New York, I'm talking a worldwide banking institution. Go figure, them bankers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, how how. How low can I go with this uh, thing? Because I, yeah. I could go kind of low.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. i don't set okay. the
0: bar really high here today's okay.
2: dog.
1: <laughs> this guy would, sounds okay. like he'd be flying out to Epstein
0: Island, though, or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I mean, he, dude, here's a guy that, because we also, there were, uh, there were these houses of ill repute, let's speak, in some of the luxury high-rises in midtown where they had those you know those um, call girls that were charged, you know two thousand dollars an hour and you know because they were absolutely drop dead gorgeous women uh but no this guy wants to uh not sandy cook <laughs> yeah this guy uh sandra cook sandra cook's crack um uh, <laughs> yeah uh uh, I mean, just the most. She looked like a character from The Walking Dead. I mean, that's how bad. And yeah. so, uh, how do how does this guy put this crap in his mind? So, uh, uh, now. So again, I get another one one night, and it same thing, where it's uh, uh it was a white transvestite kid. He was a young kid, man. He was probably only about 21, but he already had, you know, the HIV, um, you know, already had the body sores, and he wore a little pink dress on 8th Avenue, and he would give $10 blowjobs to uh, help survive his crack habit. Well, he he comes up to me one night, screaming, and he's pointing at a car, and uh, he's saying, "I, I was just kidnapped. I was just kidnapped. I was raped. And I was, and listen, you know, we take everything serious, you know. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, this is an unserious guy. You know, anytime I would see this kid, you know, getting picked up, you know, doing his little, you know, hook, street hooker thing, I mean, I could care less, you know. Um, that wasn't part of my job. Prostitu- we can't make prostitution arrest. A lot of people think cops could do that. Uh, no, there's laws. Just because you observe and you know what's going on, Uh, you can't, you can't make arrests. I mean, there's a process for that and it's done with undercovers. And so the most we can do is shoot them away. But uh, so, you know, for this kid to come running up to me uh, who would always, you know, be avoiding me, I'm saying, you know, something's wrong here. And so I get a quick glance at the license plate. I jot down the license plate of the car that's speeding away. And um, so I said, you know, so what's going on? He goes, I was, I was, Taken against my will, and I was I was raped, and uh, he goes I was sexually assaulted. And I I said, but aren't you? He goes, No, no, it's not uh, the things that I I do. I said, Okay, so I I bring him into the station house to be interviewed by a detective, uh, and uh, you know what what happened here? And it was this middle aged white couple that pulled up alongside of him. And uh, the guy gets out of the car and shows a badge and a gun, and says, "You're under arrest." So I said, "Oh shit!" Now he's talking about it's a cop. Uh, so uh, you know what's more? So now we got to call internal affairs in on this because it's being you know alleged a cop forced him into the car against his will. And so what about this rape thing? So he was forced into the car. It was a it was a Pathfinder right there. It was black Pathfinder, or uh, similar similar nineties SUV. And so, guy with his wife, middle aged white couple, and they force uh, the kid into the front seat, put the seatbelt on him, and uh, the wife gets in the back seat. And then they drive a few blocks away into this deserted block that's over the railways, and you know there's just, there's no traffic there at all on, on, on overnight. And, uh, so, okay, so the, the, the male driver pulls down his pants and he, uh, the, the white, uh, the AIDS kid is, uh, wearing his skirt. He pulls up the kid's skirt, drops the kid's panties and Okay, so he the the alleged cop. It it turns out, please. Oh, yeah. Let me. He wasn't a cop. He was a correction. He was a correction officer. Okay, he was a Rikers guard. So, (laughs) Uh, he wasn't a New York City cop. He was a correction officer, and so he begins to uh, suck this kid's dick, while his wife was doing the reach around and masturbating him okay wow. now everyone's plans for the weekend what <laughs> what what couple sits down at the dinner table and says hey i got a good idea <laughs> i got a good idea i uh, how about if i suck a dick and you jerk me off hey wouldn't that be fun Yeah, let's go out to the theater district and... uh... (laughs) Not just any dick. We're going to get a young AIDS dick. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's so obvious that this kid... And, I mean, of course, they would never think in a million years that this kid would report it because since I had the... (laughs) My good cop skills to write down that license plate number, (laughs) uh, this couple was actually... Arrested within twelve hours and charged with kidnapping and sexual abuse and all sorts of other things, Uh, and uh, I I did not feel one bit sorry for those two. (laughs) Who the hell? I mean, before I even said that anniversary present. Before I even said that story, have you ever heard of anybody ever doing that ever before in your life? No, (laughs) I just. Yeah,
1: Tom, I know you got like, uh, yeah, I know you probably got a million more of these types of stories. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, We'll definitely have to to do a follow up, but I want to make sure I I, I keep uh, cognizant of the time, too, um, because we've been on here over an hour. And and one of the main things that I really wanted to get into was, uh, you know, obviously what happened uh, September 11th, 2001 and uh you know um maybe how maybe you can recall like you know i guess what what things were like before you know just before it happened and then how things were at, at, during and after as as a new york city police officer
0: well um yeah so actually leading up to this so now uh at this point in time now you know uh now the Y2K scare was all over with because that was a huge issue in New York City. Oh, especially it, where
1: you used to work at Wall Street. I'm sure everybody was flipping out about that. It, it
0: was, it was everywhere. Um, yeah. You know, cause I had family that was still on Wall Street. So, you know, now they were working, you know, 15, 18 hours a day because everyone in the world thought the computers were going to shut down and, um, we were on all on super high alert as cops because they thought that if every computer was going to crash, it was just going to be, you know, uh, the last of days, anarchy. So we would actually have to work 12 hours. So now that the Y2K thing is over with, and, you know, because that was a whole big boondoggle itself. Um, <laughs> but, you know, now, so now we're, we're up to New York City. The crime is. Way, way down. The streets are safe and friendly. Times Square has been completely reborn. Um, You know, the theaters were all redone on 42nd Street where, you know, the Lion King is going on every night and families could walk, you know, with their children up and down the block and not be molested or harassed. I mean, things were really, really nice. And things in New York City were looking great. Um, I had worked okay, so I arrived at work September 10th at 11 o'clock at night to begin my tour for September 11th. My my tour went from 11:15 uh, at night until uh, 10 minutes till 8 in the morning, and so uh, it wound up. It was a beautiful day. I mean, just when the sun rose, it was the, the the weather was just Perfect. Okay. So um nobody's wearing jackets. I get in my car at ten minutes to eight and I start driving home. And my way home from Midtown Manhattan to Staten Island is I drive past the World Trade Center. I drive past the Twin Towers on the West Side Highway before I get into the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. And I always would always, always, always look up at those towers because my memories of working there. I worked in the Twin Towers on the Commodity Exchange all during the eighties. You know that was that was my home. You know that was my, my The Commodity Exchange was right there in Four World Trade Center. Um. And, uh, and a very quick memory back from there is uh, during the eighties when I was working on the Commodity Exchange, uh, and things were so much different back then as far as security wise. Uh. We got off of work at one thirty in the afternoon. Wall Street was a nine-to-five place. We we were off at one thirty in the afternoon, and I was a young kid. I was 17, you know. What are we going to do with our time? You don't, You didn't want to rush home from Manhattan because it was cool. And me and my buddy, we would go across the street and get a case of beer, and we would take the elevator to the top of the World Trade Center uh, up on the visitor's deck. And, you you know, we were able to just walk out there with a case of beer, and security would just walk over and say, if you launch any cans over the side, we're going to have you locked up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That was, that was like the only rule, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. Tr- tr- drink all you want, you know, two 17 year old kids with an entire case of Budweiser, <laughs> Just <laughs> don't launch those cans over the side. <laughs> so that was the, you know, that was actually a frequent uh, afternoon thing for me was uh, you know, Going up on top, because we would just keep screaming, we're on top of the world, Ma, we're on top of the world. So, uh, yeah, f- fond memories. So every time I drove past, so just fond memories of being there. Um, and, you know, I still had a lot of friends who worked there. So, um, you know, just drive past and gave it a glance. Um, I got home uh, probably at about 20 after 8, 8.30 around and uh i was tired uh because i had worked uh a lot of overtime the prior day and so i just to catch up on sleep and so instead of sleeping in my bedroom i decided to go in the basement so that this way when the kids came home from school you know i wouldn't be woken up by them i just wanted to get a good sleep into the night so i went down to the basement i shut off all the lights and uh so I couldn't hear phones ringing or anything. So, uh, I, I woke up at around 11 AM. Uh, and just, you know, to get up to use the bathroom and I flipped the news on real quick and I just can't believe, you know, I just, this is all over the news, um, uh, that, you know, these planes hit the world trade center. And, uh, and then seeing the buildings collapsing. And I'm just, you know, out of a, a fog. I mean, I've only been asleep for a couple of hours. And so I'm just really, I mean, physically, for the first time in my life, actually hitting myself saying, Am I, am I having a nightmare? And I just keep flipping from channel to channel to channel to channel. And I, I, I just cannot believe what I'm seeing. Because uh, I'm watching it on TV just like everybody else and so uh you know i know that you know this is it i gotta just spring into action um you know but you know just took me you know time to collect my thoughts of what do i really have to do first you know if i'm coming from home i mean the most important thing is uh i gotta get my kids uh and i gotta make sure that somebody's watching the kids um And I don't know when my wife is getting off from work because she worked in the school system. So they might be holding her uh, for, you know, the the kids that they they wanted parents to pick up all their children. So she might be held at the school. So I got to make sure that I got somebody to watch my kids. And so I'm calling the schools. And, uh, well, we got that settled. And uh, so then I... I called into work and they told me that I'm not going to be able to get off of Staten Island um, because they locked down all of Staten Island. There's only uh, four bridges to get you off of Staten Island. One goes to Brooklyn, the other three go to the state of New Jersey. And you got the Staten Island ferry that goes from Staten Island to Manhattan. That those are the only ways off of Staten Island. And they said there's no way you're getting across any of the bridges and uh the ferry is only going to be used as a morgue ferry for for bodies recovered so uh there's no way to get off that island and uh so i had to think about this so there's got to be a way to get in there and um i mean because staten island is home to uh, a lot of New York City police officers, a lot of New York City fire department, uh, a lot of city workers since that, out. Um, so uh, I'm saying these guys have got to be getting off one way or another. And so I, I figured the best bet for me to do is uh, New Jersey. Um, and so uh, I called into work and they said, they said, spend a few hours with your family because once you're in here, you ain't going home. Or in the worst case, they may never, ever see you again. Mm. So um, I was granted a great opportunity that many, many guys have not been able to uh, have that opportunity to spend a few hours with their, you know, with the wife and the kids and uh, any other relatives that were nearby and just spend a little bit of, you know, hug time and, uh, you know, reassurance you know everything's going to be all right i gotta go and do what i gotta do but at least i was able to have some of that quality time uh so that that was really truly a blessing and then uh so a little later on in that evening uh i had gotten in the car uh threw in a couple of changes of clothes uh and then just uh Headed over to one of the New Jersey bridges and I crossed over into Bayonne, New Jersey. Uh, and again, the bridge was closed, but as soon as I pulled up, uh, port authority cops that were securing the bridge, I said, I'm going to trade center. Yeah. And they were like, go right ahead, straight ahead. Uh, got to the New Jersey turnpike, uh, state troopers were there. And, you know, again, Jersey turnpike was closed off. Uh, just showed them my ID. They said head straight to the Holland tunnel He goes, uh, no, I'm sorry. Head to the Lincoln tunnel because the Holland tunnel, which is a further lower Manhattan, they said, you'll, you'll never get out of it. Uh, you know, this collapsed crap on the other side. So, uh, headed over to the Lincoln tunnel, which actually comes right outside of my station house. And so, uh, yeah, that was the way, uh, that I was, I, I got myself into Manhattan and, uh,
1: and this was by the time you know after making sure your kids and and wife and family were were safe and spending that time with them um you know obviously this is after the towers that had already fallen then. they were already down
0: they were already you, down
1: you were part of the crew kind of helping retrieve and help clean up and
0: well i mean it, it, there's there's a lot more going on than that because um yeah, the first night getting down there. Okay, so this is it's it's less than twenty four hours from the collapse itself. Um, so I mean, th- this it's just a uh, complete complete chaos and and again complete bewilderment because there's now there's no telephone service. Um, there's no uh, the the radio communications. Uh, all went down, all police headquarters, all of the telephone switchboards went down. Um, so everything was being organized basically kind of like the old school way, you know, where uh, there weren't enough radios to give out to the cops for the, the radios that did work. Um, so it all had to be done, on uh, paper, you know, pieces of paper, no computer printouts or anything. And, you know, we all had to uh, travel together and uh, going into, complete unknown. Uh, there were, you know there were no street lights. I mean there was there was no electricity. Um, but the buildings were on fire. Uh, you know it was it was an active, massive casualty situation where nobody had clue one as to how many people were in the building. Uh, they, they had no accountability of how many cops and firemen were in there. Uh, where people could possibly be trapped I mean it was just complete uh you know nobody knew really how to approach this because something like this has never happened uh yeah. you know, Oklahoma City bombing was one thing, but you know that was there was a different type of uh of, you know an explosion over there this was complete collapse of two of the biggest buildings in the world. Um, and I mean, it went straight through down, you know, crushed subway tunnels, you know, you're talking about, they had no idea how many, uh, you know, subway trains were underneath there were crushed and how many people could have been in there. And, you know, how do you approach this thing? And, uh, so yeah, when I first got down there and i mean, the choking, uh, the the smoke, I mean, you know, basically we, we, we were kind of staged about four or five blocks away. Because uh, just no breathing. The only people that had breathing apparatus is firemen. Um, so it was it was it was a step into hell. You know, this was uh, uh, it was frightening. It was yeah. frightening. Um, I was never frightened too much in my whole career. This was frightening and uh, indescribable.
1: And um, not just you know. Not just uh, trying to find people that were like trapped, but I mean, you know, having to deal with a panicked, you know, civilian community and stuff too. I'm sure.
0: Uh, yeah, um, and you know, uh, you know, I always kind of had an answer for something, um, but you know, anybody, uh, any civilian that came and, and asked any. There, there's no answer that you could possibly give. Um, yeah. and in the coming days, uh, you know, I mean, before they set up, you know, it took quite a few days to set up an entire security perimeter, you know, where in the beginning, anybody could just come and go anybody. Um, and so, you know, within, you know, I'd say in the third day, you know, it, so heartbreaking, you know, people coming down with photos of their family members and saying, uh, can you help find him? And, and you know, uh, you're not going to be rude to these people, you know. I mean, it, it, you just wanted to to actually hug them and shed tears with them uh, because, you know, and it, there was hundreds of people just walking around holding photos of family members. Because the hospitals didn't really, people were being brought to hospitals in New Jersey. Uh, you know, again, there was no phone communication, so all the Lower Manhattan hospitals uh, they had no way to communicate to you know family members that they had a family member in the hospital. Uh, it, you know, just total chaos for for the first week, um, and you know it, it it was taking a real toll because we had to work 18 hour tours. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I, I traveled from Staten Island, which was, you know, an hour commute, uh, by car each way. So, uh, an 18 hour tour, well, there's, that's 20 hours out of the day, you know, just the travel and the tour. Um, if I was to travel and, um, but then, you know, you got to be in for roll call ahead of time. And, you know, there's a lot more process. So, you know, mm-hmm. we were lucky to get in, you know, if you will, if you could find somewhere to lay down for two hours, M- most people would sleep in their cars for a couple of hours. So we all knew where our cars were parked in Midtown and, uh, you know, just go over and tap. That was really the best place to sleep was in your car. Um you know, some cops uh, had cell phones, but there was no cell towers, but they would be able to drive, uh, you know, further up northern Manhattan and and get some of the uh, the Jersey Tower signals in order to phone relatives and that sort of thing. Uh, but not everybody had cell phones back then, you know, it was, you know,
2: yeah.
0: maybe, you know, 20 percent of the, the guys carried cell phones. So, yeah, you would actually have to drive somewhere and try to find a signal. Because you weren't getting any in in Little Manhattan, um,
1: and like you know, so during this this time, as time goes on, you what what would you say going back to like kind of talking about that that another that different level of New York City pride? Um, oh, <laughs> you know, you what are- would you say you saw that the your 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 fellow New Yorkers
0: coming together and? Uh, okay, so the first. The first time that, uh, okay, so, you know, once things began to get organized, and I'm talking about, you know, now it's getting into, you know, say, day seven, day eight. Now things are being organized, you know, the proper way where, um, and, uh, you know, and a shout out, a thank you uh, to, I mean, all the cops and all the firemen and all the paramedics, all the military volunteers that came from all over the country, everywhere in the country. uh, You know, every police department sent their people. Uh, Every fire department sent whatever people they can, you know, small towns in Ohio uh, with the department of uh, five guys. They sent one of their guys uh, that, you know, I drove around uh, one night, but um, yeah, we would get shipped down in uh, New York city buses and, they were just all of these uh, bus drivers and god bless all of them as well because uh every precinct station house there were at least five big new york city buses to load not only nypd guys but I, you know we got on a bus uh by my command and there were cops from chicago cops from minneapolis uh, a couple of cops from florida joining on the bus with us and you would take the west side highway straight down along the West Side Highway, straight to uh, Ground Zero. Um, And so at this point, uh, Canal Street was a barrier. Lower Manhattan, Canal Street was a barrier where no civilians could go past uh, because it was the danger zone, the hard zone. And, you know, fires are still raging and the dust is poisonous. I mean, it it was. But that whole ride, once you got into Greenwich Village, it was just. Tens of thousands of New Yorkers lined up and down the West Side Highway, just holding up signs, uh, thanking us. We love you. Uh, NYPD, thank you. You're our heroes. Uh, You know, little children out there. It was like being in a parade almost, you know, each time that we traveled down there. And what a something I've never seen uh, in New York City. where, you know, all, and uh, all of these people, again, Greenwich Village was always, you know, the, the, the Bohemian, you know, uh, anti-establishment type of community. And they were some of our biggest fans, you know, Um, because, you know, it's their community. Every single person was impacted by this thing in a horrible way. And, you know, you want to see people that are going down there and, you know, doing, uh, the most dangerous work I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, I I mean, I saw guys crawling into spaces, you know, and again, uh, there's, there's buildings uh, where on a few occasions um, and I was right there. I mean, I've actually, I actually went into uh, the pit. I went eight stories down into the pit at one point uh, and generally i did it overnight you know my my tour was the, the late tour so we worked uh, four in the afternoon until eight o'clock in the morning um where our assignments were over there and um yeah in you know in the middle of the night all of a sudden you would hear sirens blasting off and um and then they would say building collapse building collapse and uh, they would shine these giant spotlights on a building, and you—you know—you would just hear the rumbling, uh, and these alarms were going off every couple of hours because all of these buildings surrounding us were unstable. Mm. Uh, the Deutsche Bank building across the street, uh, which was right over our heads, yeah, uh, you, you know, all of these buildings uh, that surrounded. That, that didn't collapse well all of their foundations were completely you know unstable so uh you know what you're you're in there and you, you're just trying to find you're trying to rescue people that may be trapped in there and at the same time you, you may have buildings coming down and killing another hundred people uh yeah. thousand people you know they were just uh it, 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 just incredible things uh, incredible bravery, and then um, you know the, the Red Cross coming around and and constantly feeding us. Um, the, the one thing I got to say is we were never wanting for food. There was a, there was always food. There was always uh, uh, sports drinks. Uh, the Red Cross handing out cigarettes, handing out packs of cigarettes. Um, which was great, you know, because hey, you know, a lot of us are smokers. And so, you know, the red cross was there to give us anything that we needed to be comfortable. And, uh, the churches, uh, St. Paul's church right around the block, uh, was an area to go in to, uh, be able to lay down on one of the wooden pews and, and get a little bit of rest because, you know, every, uh. Every four hours they gave us a forty minute break to, you know, to go wander somewhere and just, you know, rest, relax a little bit. Uh, you know, you could go into a church and you could get brand new boots because our boots were melting. You know, I, I had good boots, I had good Timberland boots and the bottoms of those things were melting off. Um so the heat <laughs> was still it was still so hot there, huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Walking on that steel. Um and but it, it just the dust, um, you know, once the sun was down, and again all, all the light was basically just, you know, the artificial uh spotlights. Uh again, there were no street lights and there were no building lights. Um so uh which you're not used to in New York City. <laughs> you know, New York City, there's yeah. all these everything's always lit up, no matter where you are. It's all lit up we're used to artificial light. So um yeah, you walk into these really dark corners, and uh, you'd be five feet away from somebody, and you can't see them because the the dust—it was just constant. The dust was just constant because the fires were constantly burning. Uh, the dust was—I mean, uh, when I walked into uh, I walked into uh, the World Financial Center across the street, and they—I was walking there all by myself. There was not another single person in there. Uh, But the dust was up to my knees, so I decided that I'm going to walk around and, um, in in case my boots hit anything, because there could be bodies on the floor, um, covered in dust that you know you can't see, and so uh, yeah, dust was all the way up to my knees. Uh, You know, it's a picture almost like you know a blizzard, walking through a blizzard, but you know that dust wasn't as hard as snow, you know, you could get through it. Um, but yeah, breathing that stuff in because, uh, you know, they gave out those paper masks because, you know, what else are you going to give people? You know, a lot of oh. I, people would have bandanas on. Uh, I, I I was, the dust wasn't bothering me other than the taste. You know, the taste was uh because it almost tasted like death Uh, that's why we're constantly washing down with the energy drinks and washing the mouth out um but uh yeah uh you couldn't put a mask on if you put a mask on within five minutes it was caked on like plaster and you couldn't breathe anyway because the dust would just cake on the moisture that you're expelling so it would go on like plaster on your face so um uh, yeah, but just um, you know, so
1: as as you know, time went by. You know, you got to network and talk with a lot of cops and and first responders, form those relationships. Did you ever hear any stories from any of the ones that were actually, you know, there as everything was going
0: down? Uh, um. Okay, so um, I had gotten into uh, uh, a, um, a a group therapy group for, you know, first responders. Uh, I joined some group therapy. Uh, luckily, I had the opportunity to be self-aware that, you know, uh, I had to deal with some of the PTSD. And yeah. so... Uh, there was a, a, a young cop that I met, um, and so he and his sergeant were in the building before the collapse, um, and they were getting uh, six civilians. They had six civilians in the stairwell, and they were just about to uh, the first floor of uh, the North Tower, but one of the side buildings or of the— the north tower basically and the ground level stairwell and um that's when the buildings collapsed and so uh this cop and his sergeant i mean they they heard everything coming down and um they all huddled in this you know alcove in this ground level stairwell uh and you know everything just collapsed around them and so i I couldn't even imagine the horror Um, But they were trapped in there, in that building for five days uh, in the stairwell with these uh, six civilians. And uh, the only way that they stayed alive, because they were all injured as well, but they were in a space where, you know, they were still able to breathe and the constant water being poured onto the building uh, water was leaking down into the space in which they were huddled in. And uh, so that's how they were able to uh, keep hydrated. Mm. Uh, because, you know, a few days without water, you could pass away. Uh, one of the civilians did die of the injuries uh, on the second day. Uh, so, you know, it was uh, him, his sergeant, the other five people with a corpse. And uh, they just they they had all given up hope. Um, and then it was just one evening, when uh, one of those giant constructive construction rippers, because this is what was going on now at this point was, uh, you know, the if you see the photos, the, the collapse now, I, I don't think there's anything higher than 12 stories. And so you know, you start ripping from the top and start ripping your way down. Um, because that's the only way to get to these lower levels because there's, you know, that whole shopping mall that's underneath, uh, the trade center, which actually stayed intact. But the only way to get to it was actually to rip down to it. There was a couple of, uh, coal miners that snuck through and were able to gain access to it. That's how they knew that there was access. But anyway, so all of a sudden, you know, uh, here's this kid. You know, I became friends with for a while and uh, the sergeant and the other civilians, uh, they just see the wall just start tearing apart. And uh, they began screaming and uh, they got the attention and the guy stopped the machine. And, you know, every square foot of that whole surrounding area, there's cops, there's firemen. So, you know, they were quickly, you know, rushed to and they were carried out and um five days in that thing uh he uh he he wasn't able to recover um no and uh my heart went out to him but i could never imagine being in that same situation uh i don't know what that would have ever done to me mentally you know where uh you know he could never be a cop again and uh it was hard enough for them to deal with just being a human again after being trapped like that. And so, yeah, true horror. Um, uh, You know, um, I just
1: was thinking too, like, you know, I remember, you know, watching the news and everything that was being, you know, especially, you know, even, you know, the first couple of years afterwards too, it was just like, and I, and I got to go visit there for Navy training and how well the, the police officers and firefighters treated us uh, while we were there visiting. It's like, I hardly had to pay for anything. Got to go to Yankees games and all that stuff for free. And and, uh, you know, just so welcoming. But um, the, I, I remember You know, that was like, you know, the firefighters and cops were the heroes, you know? I mean, everybody loved police officers then, you know? Yeah, you know? Yeah, you know, and it was just like, and then, you know, then it was, uh, the the slogan was 9-11, never forget, never forget, you know? We all love being an American again. We all love flying our flags. You know, we all came together, you know, and it's just amazing how, you know, in such a short period we we are where we're at as a country and 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 how cops are portrayed today and you know military and our country even you know
0: yeah it it it, it it's a horrible horrible thing um because the pride is gone um which is heartbreaking um oh and i and, and this is important to tell you okay because um, you know, so, of course, I mean, from the first year on, um, probably the most dignified ceremony, other than, you know, too many unknown soldiers in, in Arlington, but one of the most dignified ceremonies you could ever witness was the anniversary of nine eleven down at the site, and I'm talking way before the Reconstruction. Um, where, you know, they would name, they would read the names of each and every person that perished that day. Um, And, uh, you know, and it became an annual thing. And, you know, you'd have a fire department, you know, uh, it it was a mandatory, you know, you went there in your dress uniform, you know, you went there uh, with with, with true pride, uh, you know, And it was going on. It was an annual thing. And um, so it comes to the 10th anniversary, which that's supposed to be a real big deal. Yeah. And, of course, they made it a big deal. The politicians made it a big deal. Okay. Where Mayor Bloomberg said there's no room for cops and firemen at this ceremony. Wow. Who said that publicly? Okay. There's no room for cops and firemen at this ceremony. Okay. Look, you could, anybody want to fact check that? Yeah. Look back. 10th anniversary. Mayor Bloomberg, the piece of shit. So uh, I was, I I was devastated. Bill, I was, I I, I mean, and and not just me. I mean, I can't speak for other people's opinions, but I'm sure the outrage was, I mean, everyone had to be seething, you know, because it was a political event now. Now it was, you know, who's going to be seen at, you know, yeah. when they're ringing the bells and reading the names, who's going to be seen? You know, what yeah. politician is? So they turned it into that now. OK, so now you're going to have your presidential candidates and all of these people running for all these offices. And all these, cele- let's bring the celebrities in, you know, because they really had a big hand in this, you know? Yeah. Right? Cops and firemen not welcome. And so I was so, uh I, I didn't know how to take out my anger. I just, but luckily I was sober at the time. I stayed sober through that. Uh I jumped in my car and I just decided to see America, okay, where it's, real people and i wanted to go across america and uh see real americans because those are the people that all stood up for us and clapped for us and they sent us their cops and their firemen and they yeah. their children sent the letters that i read on a daily basis their their little kids sent in notes and sent in little presents and little bows that they made for us uh, i wanted to see those people and yeah. so uh Uh, again, this is when I wound up in Boise, Idaho, (laughs) when I saw Flav.
1: Real quick, too, I wanted to uh, ask, you know, I mean, you were talking about how New York City was like, you know, was on the rise, was, uh, you know, under uh, Mayor Giuliani, you know, how things were, you know. And then talking about that change, not only in, you know, the nation, but you said how 10 years, not even like 10 years later, and then you get Mayor Bloomberg. How did, like the, uh, how did New York City change during that time as well?
0: Well, uh, Bloomberg just asked Giuliani, what did you do? And I'll just keep doing what you did, but I'll take credit for it. Um you know, because he was this Mr. Billionaire guy. Um, but all he wanted to do was uh, choke the municipal workers, uh, you know, refuse to give cops a raise. He, that That's what made uh, it was no longer popular to become a cop or to become a fireman because it was so unaffordable. Because now the city was on on a rise. And it, it, it's completely reborn. The city, I mean, it's just something i never thought i would even see in my lifetime but it became so unaffordable uh for people on a uh, a civil service salary um and um so and there were so many other job opportunities because you know new york was thriving um and people could make a ton of money in any other any other industry and so um now uh know to be a cop they they couldn't recruit uh and it wasn't just new york city you know it was happening around the country because you know who would want to do a job where you're not appreciated because you know the appreciation goes away real quick yeah okay uh you know firemen are always heroes because they're always going and you know doing rescues and this and the other thing Cops are always the bad guys because we only get called to your misery. Mm. People don't call the cops because, hey, we got we just hit the lottery and we wanted to invite all of you cops over for dinner. No, <laughs> hey, no. My husband came home drunk and he beat me and he, he's beating the kids and, and you arrest the dad. And then now, now all of a sudden the wife is saying, wait, I don't want you to arrest him. I just wanted you to talk to him. And uh, you you can't take them away because they need the rent money. And, you know, and look, kids, the bad cops are taking your dad away, Uh, which happens every day to uh, many, many cops across this country. Uh, You know, we get called for everyone's misery. And if we can't solve their problem right then and there and right away, they just they don't like us. Yeah, uh, but you know what I and I've got a my biggest peeve in the world. Okay, all right, cops give tickets. That's if they would just turn around and tell cops. And I'm talking because every municipality they just send us out as tax collectors. Okay, I would say ninety percent of the cops out there do not want to give anyone a ticket. Okay, they don't. They're forced to. They're mandated to. Okay, they are. They are sent out there to bleed the citizens and give them additional taxes. And uh, you know, luckily, one thing we did have in New York City was discretion. Uh, You know, you could run through five red lights if you gave me a halfway decent excuse. The, you know, you had diarrhea and you're racing home before you crapped your pants, <laughs> I would give you an escort home. I wouldn't give you a ticket. Uh you got other, other uh, you got all these municipalities all over the place. Uh yeah. as a matter of fact, I spoke to a, a small time mayor in Ohio at uh at a certain event. He was actually a mayor of uh, this little town in Ohio. And he said if it wasn't for uh, you know, making the cops give X amount of tickets a day, uh, he wouldn't be able to collect his salary. Mm. And so then you start looking at it is, you know, who who's really the bad guy when you're getting that ticket? Now, if you walk into any dinner party, OK, and and you say anybody at this table ever have a bad experience with the cop? And anybody that raises their hand, I'll guarantee you that they say, I got an unfair ticket. And then just getting that one ticket. That's cops are assholes. Cops suck. I got, you know what? I got no sympathy for them. And you know something? A lot of them, I don't blame these people. I don't blame them i used to get in so much trouble because i would never write tickets to anybody i mean hey listen if it came down to it if there was some you know some serious serious person that has no business driving a car uh you know and doing real dangerous crap okay yeah yeah putting people at risk yeah yeah but for the most part when i was forced and i mean forced under this threat of, you know, we're not going to give you Saturday night off to go to your brother's wedding and be in his wedding party unless you write a book of tickets by Friday, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, And under that threat, you know, uh, I would go out and I would write people tickets for, you know, a broken headlight because if you get that fixed in 24 hours, you don't have to pay for it. (laughs) And I would give them the form. I said, all you got to do, fix the light, have the mechanics sign the form, mail it in, no, no fine. You know, so I would try to make it as easy as possible. Um, but screw that. I mean, uh, listen, we're supposed to like have good relations with the public. Yeah, serve and protect. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: But not serve summonses, okay? Yeah. Because hey, listen, it you know, running a red light, it's a hundred and eighty-five dollar fine, but it's not just that. Because now that ticket goes into the, the DMV and Allstate gets notified you ran a red light and your insurance went up $1,000 a year. I mean, you're hurting people real bad, real bad. And, it just, and if they would just eliminate cops, unless, you know, serious traffic things. I mean, you know, you set up your DWY checkpoints. You do, you know, you, you make sure the roads are safe you know you're sicking the dogs on you know the prey for what for money yeah. to go to the municipality screw that uh, yeah biggest and uh, and again that's where so much love is lost and you know i'm sure a lot of people would agree with that so
1: yeah yeah you know um well you know you've touched on uh you know one of the things that we well a couple of the things so far you know that that brought us together and that we have in common, but you want to share a little bit more about, uh, you know, uh, getting sober. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, I I drank my entire life. Uh, I came from, uh, you know, the stereotypical Irish Catholic family, uh, where, you know, (laughs) if the kid's old enough to pick up a can of beer and steal sips on his own, <laughs> that's my boy. Um, wow. but not only that, but you know, they would, uh, you know, I would always give sips of beer out of the can or, you know, I went to the ball with my dad, you know, uh, you know, pick up his glass to taste the beer it would never be no, put that down. It just, you know, it was a common thing, you know, uh, it goes back to the 1900s when there was no drinking water in New York City. The only uh, purified <laughs> hydration was beer. So that's where it all comes back to. But, uh, yes, yeah, but I was, I was, uh, I would always consider myself a heavy drinker. Uh, but, you know, when I got into the police academy, uh, I just stopped drinking completely. You know, uh, I was able to, you know, uh, I wanted that job. Um And, you know, they said one of the biggest fuck ups that most guys lose their job over is related to alcohol. So stay out of bars and, you know, behave yourself. And so, um, you know, I and I was happy that I was able to do that. You know, uh, I never considered myself uh, a sick, a sick drinker. Um, But then, you know, after the Trade Center thing happened and I guess, you know, it's related to PTSD and it was related to a whole host of other things. You know, I, I later came to find out, but uh, I, I think I, I, I think the first rehab that I I voluntarily, I was never mandated. I was never asked. I was never recommended by a family member or anything. But uh, I recognized my own issue where, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to stop drinking and I still would run around to the deli and pick up a case of beer and you know while well opening the first can say i don't want to do this um that's when i realized the stupidity of it you know uh, i don't want to do it but i'm doing it uh, so that was uh basically the first time I, I decided to get sober and just to be sober for a year and then just to go back to the social drinking type of thing which i was i was managing for a while um Uh, Things got really, really bad Uh, 2007 to 2009. um, Again, I think it was, you know, it it was a lot of the uh, I was I was getting sick. Uh, I was getting a lot of illnesses from from the World Trade Center. Uh, My exposure from being down there, um, I'm completely, I mean, riddled uh, with skin cancer. Uh, that's only gotten worse, progressively worse year after year, Uh, the respiratory problems, which, you know, I'm on day three of antibiotics right now from uh, the constant uh, respiratory problems. I got glass and asbestos in my esophagus, in my lungs. Um, So uh, I guess a lot of depression related to not only was I getting physically ill and I was, you know, mentally sliding, you know, into depression, depression, because uh, my friends were dying. Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, guys that were exposed to the World Trade Center. You know, colleagues of mine and not just, you know, not people that I, not only people that I personally knew, but on the news every night that was saying, you know, X amount of firemen are dying each day. X amount of cops are dying each day from, the, and it's being related to their exposure of the toxins and the metals and all the other nonsense Uh, that they got from being at the world trade center and i you know so you know looking back i'm thinking that you know maybe i was thinking that i was going to die anyway so i'm just screw it and so yeah i i really drank myself uh pretty hard (laughs) um so yeah i went into rehab again in 2007 uh i went to a, a real uh a real good rehab that was in, uh, Sweden, Pennsylvania called Marworth. And they had a program for, uh, cops, firemen, military, um, where we were, you know, kind of separated from the group of, there were also doctors, nurses, you know, and they went and they talked their type of stuff. We talked our stuff and finally being in a, in a rehab with other, people that have seen things that cannot be you, you can't discuss with your family yeah what, what am i gonna do go home and tell the wife oh you know she, she's like oh how was work tonight oh yeah i, I uh i saw a uh suicide yeah a guy uh, blew his head off with a shotgun and his uh his little kids uh were trying to put uh daddy's head back together and they were in the blood you, you know, you, you, you can't talk to your wife and your kids about the horrors of everyday police work. Yeah. You know, I mean, we see some horrible, horrible stuff that you can only talk to with other people that can actually discuss the same horrible, horrible stuff because they've seen, witnessed. You know, so, uh, you know, you can't imagine, you know, a military, you can't take a military guy and and put him in with, uh, you know, some psychiatrist or psychologist that just came out of NYU. And, you know, the only dead body she's ever seen is uh, the guy that she woke up next to. <laughs> yeah, She thought he was dead. <laughs> he didn't perform that well. Uh, you know what I'm saying is, you know, you're going to tell them that you've seen, you know, the horrors of war, the 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 horrors of. They don't understand. They don't have clue one. I don't care what you read out of a book, unless you're there and you saw it, you can't have that same understanding. So, luckily, you know, my 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 serious journey into sobriety, it it started right there, mm-hmm. at Marworth, and being with those people, and uh, and learning how to start digging deep and, uh, into the feelings and, and, you know, getting active in AA, uh, I you can't recommend that more to anybody else in the world. It, uh, you gotta go to AA to be around, uh, people that understand the drinking, just like, you know, I was in a uh, rehab where, you know, cop to cop, fireman to fireman, we understood each other. So now the next step in the grow up period is now you make AA a daily thing where you can now talk to other people who understand your drinking. You don't have to talk about your horrors of the job. You don't have to talk about, but you, you talk about the horrors of your drinking or what it did to you physically, mentally, spiritually, the whole nine yards. And so I, I, I grew to understand that. And that's what they taught me in rehab. You know, rehab is just to dry you out and teach you and educate you that you you know, you gotta go out and live a life. Yeah. And so um again, you know, physically I was still uh you know, I was I was doing so much better uh you know, as far as uh the sobriety was going and work the program, but then uh you know, physical stuff happened again, you know, uh wound up Falling to a sidewalk, crushing my lower spine. Uh, they wanted to fill me up with Percocets and Oxycontins and morphine pills and all this crap. And uh, and uh, I, uh, after a while, you know, th- there's a doctor over-prescribing me all of these wackadoodle drugs. And, you know, uh, my behavior as far as, uh, you know, i i basically was turned into just a zombie and you know this was being recognized by family members and this that, and the other thing and uh so uh you know i decided that you know now now this is becoming a problem as well and i know that this one is a lot worse than drinking because i kind of know how to handle drinking i didn't know how to handle these opiate things yeah Um, and as much as I didn't want to take them, the doctor just kept prescribing more because I said, they're not working on the pain anymore. You know, after a while, you just become immune. Uh, Oh, we'll just up the doses. They, for Christ's sake, they were giving me morphine pills, uh, eight Percocets a day. Uh, some of the muscle relaxers. I mean, you know, this is stuff that. I mean, and that was destroying me physically as well, you know, because then, you know, I came to later learn, I mean, you know, basically, you know, I was, uh, becoming this opiate addict Mm. and, um, so genius me, oh, I got a great plan. I know what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to quit a cold Turkey. Just the way that I did with booze. (laughs) Ooh, guess what? (laughs) Yeah. It's a little bit different. So, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what, uh, knocked me off of my alcohol sobriety thing because genius me after two weeks of, uh, shaking and freaking and and total, I mean, you know, I was, I was basically insane. I drank to get through the withdrawals of the opiates Mm. and, uh, yeah, I drank myself silly for three months and, I uh, decided to grow up and get to a rehab again and went right back to the same place that, you know, years earlier had taken care of me and uh, gotten me sober. And, you know, again, being around the likes of the same type of people uh, because I had fallen out of AA because of, you know, the whole opiate thing. And um, doctor prescribed, uh, I never went street level or anything like that. I just quit everything. Um, but I also decided to take you know a much deeper delve into uh, you know into myself. and um you know, at this point, I'm retired, and I was like, you know, what is it that I love that uh, you know, I don't have in my life? Um, and I loved music, you know, I grew up uh, my dad was an opera singer um, besides Wall Street dude he was he was an opera singer he was in major opera groups and taught me, you know, philharmonic. Uh, I grew up with the <laughs> New York Philharmonic and uh, used to go to all the opera stuff. And, and then, you know, dad also kind of introduced this into modern, you know, rock and roll, in the seventies, you know, he said, you should love every kind of music because it's, it's this beautiful math that, you know, was put out in this world, in this universe uh, and, you know, respect all kinds of music you don't have to love every kind but respect all kinds of music and i said you know that's something that i I never did as a cop because couldn't go to concerts you know everyone's smoking weed and whatnot um you know we we were drug tested if i tested positive for any kind of marijuana thc anything like that you know if it was i I was always afraid secondhand smoke i'd be fired you're fired immediately you know there's no recourse you're fired. You, you can't say, oh, I was at the Grateful Dead show last night. It, it, well, you shouldn't have went, you know. So I, I always avoided concerts. Uh, but then I said, yeah, I'm retired now. Uh, I said, "I, you know, all well, my friends still worked. I was by myself. I said, oh, fuck it. I'll just go by myself. What's going to stop me from going by myself? And yeah. uh, first festival I went to, uh, 2012 Mayhem Festival. And um, well, searching for tickets, I wound up searching. Uh, there's a great charity by the way, uh, Medal of Honor, uh, M E T A L of Honor, nice. and it, uh, it's you know, all the uh benefits go to uh, military, and they were you know, um, they were donate, you know, the uh, Mayhem Festival had donated these super VIP tickets backstage, this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, I won the auction on eBay and, uh, man, I mean the the guy that ran, uh, uh, the, the on-site host, his name is Greg Gura. I remember Greg Gura very well. And, um, and the foundation that he worked for, um, Kevin Lyman, Kevin Lyman, who was, uh, Founder of the uh dwarf tour, Tour. yeah, and uh, Kevin also has a number of other uh charities in his foundation, uh, Music Cares, Uh, he donates uh, quite a bit of money to, um, and so yeah, Kevin Lyman still does some charity events that go to uh, uh, you know, to military members and as well as um, the um. Uh, the Music Cares, and a couple other musician foundations that take care of uh, musicians that are struggling with substance abuse, alcohol, housing, that sort of thing. So I'm constantly uh, donating to uh, a number of these charities uh, because it's the give back, you know, that these musicians have given me such uh, an incredible uh, experience, you know, uh, especially with the... Uh, with the things that Kevin Lyman, uh, the experiences I got from him. I, I got backstage with Ozzy. I got backstage with Slipknot. Uh, you know, here I am, just some you know dopey retired New York City cop, and I'm getting to meet uh, some of the artists that I really uh, respect and really enjoy their music. Um, so, uh, yeah, my best experiences. I don't know if I ever told you that, but my best experiences have been uh, getting the tickets through these various charities. Oh, nice. Yeah, Charity Bomb, Charity Bomb out of Chicago. I got to give Matthew a huge thumbs up. Um, he's another true hero, uh, a true Chicago hero. Uh, if you ever look into uh, Matthew's story, uh, he's somebody that uh, I would, I'll tell you off camera, uh, I would recommend a, a great interview. Uh, but uh, again, a great yeah. charity, Charity Bomb. And, uh, yeah, I just won an experience from him not long ago. And I'm going to have another one coming up in October with him as well in Las Vegas. Um, and I'm, uh, in a few weeks, I'm going out to see Metallica at SoFi Stadium, another super VIP experience.
1: Uh, yeah, I remember you telling me about that when we were hanging out for lunch uh, before you left uh, after yep. this latest ink. but.
0: Yep, to oh, yeah. Charity Buzz, another great oh. experience. So, um, uh, you know, and the, the strength, see, the, the beauty of uh, me deciding that I'm going to go by myself and I'm going to enjoy all these festivals, uh, I can only do it if I'm sober, okay? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, how, how am I going to jump in my car, you know, drive to Mansfield, Ohio, you know, secure a hotel room, drive 50 miles each way back and forth every day. If I'm drinking, it, it, that's ridiculous. I, you know, I'm there because I want to see, you know, the show. I want to be amongst people that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the the music community, you know, the, the greatest communities you'll ever see. Uh, never see a fight. Never see any... Uh, Never see any violence. Never see any hatred. Uh, everyone just hanging out, enjoying the music. So you know who needs uh, you know an additional substance uh, yeah. to to get high. I mean, damn man. You know if you can't get high, uh, seeing you know Slipknot blowing up the stage running out and screaming people equal shit <laughs> and help yourself from jumping up and down. Um, Hey, you know, uh, if, if you need a couple of beers to, to get you up for that, uh, well, all I can say is I don't, I don't. Yeah. And, and, and that's the beauty of it is, uh, I, I really don't. And, um,
1: well, I remember our experience too, you know, um, first time we met, and I've shared this on the on the podcast before, but you know, um, like I said, we're at uh, incarceration. It was the first festival after the pandemic. Yep. Yeah, you know, it was finally letting, and it just so happened it fell on the weekend of the 20th anniversary of 9/11. And um, you know, I think I, I I think a lot of us that got to meet you that weekend treated you a lot better than uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, oh, did. without a doubt, uh, and. But, I remember you talk about you know we go and there's no fighting and, and there's a community and the love and everybody getting along. Man, we had people that had been locked down just like unleashing, like letting out all the stuff they've been holding inside in those pits having the time of their lives. But when and when when the the announcement came over the PA, we're going to have a moment of silence for those that we lost on September 11th. 2001 you could hear a pin drop you know everybody coming together standing there and then that girl singing the national anthem and people hands on their hearts taking their hats off I had tears running down my eyes because that was our metal community united and beautiful and and it was just such a spiritual weekend I felt and like I said there was no coincidence that I was meeting you that weekend and we struck up a friendship it was just incredible
0: I learned a long time ago in uh, this beautiful universe of ours, there are no coincidences. Um, you know, things things always happen for a reason. Um, you know, I, I I had told you that it was uh, uh, my greatest spiritual experience, where you know, when I almost drank um, in two thousand nine, I was sent home to die. Uh, I was sent out of the hospital. I was uh, infected with MRSA internally. In a, I had it uh, from a bed surgery, uh, MRSA in my spinal cord. Uh, was wrapped around my diaphragm. It was all the way up to my neck. So they, they gave me, you know, six weeks at most to live because there's, there's really no treatment for MRSA. Uh, once that infection is there, they can only cut it out. You know, they couldn't cut out my spinal cord. Uh, so... Uh, there's there's only one last hope is uh this strongest uh antibiotic known to man called vancomycin where i had to be on the iv vancomycin at home for uh, several weeks if you know if i was or i don't know die comfortably i don't know uh (laughs) extend my life three weeks but um yeah, I remember just sitting on the couch and I was like, you know what? I never drank a whole bottle of Jack Daniels my whole life. Now, meanwhile, I've been sober for over two years now from the 2007 uh, time I went around. And I said, I'm going to go. I'm going to get a bottle of Jack Daniels. And just when that happened, my son, my son, Robert, he, he was uh only about 10 at the time. He comes in, you know, Catholic school uniform. And he comes in from school and he looks at me and goes, Daddy, could you teach me how to put the IV in you so I could help save your life? Mm. And, you know, with that, uh, you know, after I showed him and I sent him off to play and I had tears in my eyes. I I prayed to, you know, uh, my patron saint, St. Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes in all despair. And I made a deal with him that if uh, he ever uh, wants to be charitable and save my life, that I'd work for him for the rest of his life. I mean, not the rest of his life. He's yeah. an angel in heaven. I, I would work for him for the rest of my life. And uh, by some miracle, I, uh, I, I lived. I mean, the doctors to this day don't know how in the world that I survived what I survived, uh, this infection was just way too far gone. And within, uh, six months, there was absolutely no sign of the infection whatsoever. It could be dormant in my bones could pop out. That's a whole nother thing. I don't worry about, I don't care. You know, um, but yeah, since that, since making that deal with St. Jude, let me tell you something, (laughs) uh, at least, I mean, guaranteed every week uh, that somebody crosses my path that just needs a little smile and a hello or maybe needs just to help change an attire or just needs, you know, that woman in front of me in the grocery store that's $8 short and before she has to put crap back, you know, I could say, oh, I think you dropped this $10 bill behind you, you know, I mean, just little, little things. You know, nothing super major, but he's also uh, introduced me to some of the most wonderful people that I've ever met in my life, you know, where uh, we we help each other out, uh, helping other people out, and just by talking and just by, uh, you know, sharing experiences or just by laughing, you know? I, I yeah. love putting people to laugh because uh, somebody told me this a real long time ago, and it really stuck. It. When you're laughing, you cannot possibly have a dark thought in your mind, you know. And nobody ever thinks of that. But you know, next time you are laughing, there's you could be in you know a horrible mood or just thinking about you know uh, a friend's death or whatever. But in the middle of a laughter, be it a joke, something on TV, something made you laugh. There's no bad thoughts. There's they, they don't connect to that part of the brain. So uh, laughter is a brief vacation from the darkness of your mind. is yeah. what I was told. Yeah. And so if you're constantly laughing, well then shit, you're not thinking about anything miserable. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I love, you know, sharing laughter.
1: Yeah, you know, it was something I picked up, you know, during my, you know, time in the military too, you know, maybe it's a little bit of dark humor too, but, you know, oh, yeah. whatever it was to get us through, you know, and make us forget for a little bit and get us through the, the suck, you yeah. know, it's yeah. like use it, would use it as maybe some people say deflection or whatever. And it becomes kind of like, a, you know, uh, 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 you know, just a protection or something like that, you know, but I, 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 today I try not to avoid dealing with my, my stuff. I still face it and deal with it, but it's all right to laugh along the way, you know?
0: Yeah, that's why, uh, you know, and hey, listen, I'm not a teenage kid uh, obsessed with Facebook. Uh, I The only reason I really like Facebook is I post shit up there that I would dare not ever put anywhere else. You know, I, I, I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff I put on Facebook. Oh, I, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I've, I've never seen a. I've never seen a cop get arrested and put in Facebook jail so
0: much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I, I've actually had three accounts on Facebook permanently banned and deleted. Permanently, Yeah. You know, where I can't recover. And, I mean, one account I had like eight thousand great photos and memes on, and uh, and all that stuff is lost. It's just completely lost uh i had some real good stuff up there but oh yeah you know but but that's that's the dark humor stuff you know that uh that's my laughter that's my release because you know uh, dark thoughts just escape from my mind you know because i i look at a lot of these these funny meme things and you know, the, the one i put up yesterday and it was it was great you know it was uh so a guy uh, gets thrown from the 18th floor of, uh, of a nightclub and, you know, he lands on the sidewalk and, you know, and the cop says to the other one, well, obviously he wasn't the bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and then I just remembered, you know, the, one of the first times I, you know, I, I had uh, one of these jumpers of suicide in Manhattan, you know, he's a rookie cop. And uh, you know, I had to secure the scene and you know, waiting for the detectives. And the detective just looks at me, he goes, and he goes, you know, it wasn't the fall that killed him. And I'm just looking at this detective. He goes, it was a sudden stop. <laughs> and he just walks past me and, I, <laughs> and I just started laughing. Okay. Now you, you certainly wouldn't say it with a family member, but I mean, you know, yeah. that's 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 how you know, you treat things. I think this detective, he just saw, like, the gloom on my face, because it was the first time I saw somebody, you know, that had committed suicide and jumped over a building. And, yeah. um, you know, and, um... It, you know, it's
1: it's our therapy, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and it it worked, because I laughed, you know? And, and every time I kept thinking about what he said to me, because he just said it with the straightest face in the world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, that's that's another thing. I don't know if I ever, I ever told you about that one. Um, which is heartbreaking and can never be laughed at. Um, but I was uh, first cop on the scene when uh, Eric Clapton's son went out the window. Uh, back in 1990. I don't know uh, if I ever told you about that one. No, uh, I don't remember that one. Yeah, Eric Clapton's son... Uh, was three years old at the time. Three or five. Uh, It was either three or five. Um, But, uh, yeah, from I think it was the 53rd floor. And Eric Clapton was actually in in London at the time. And, you know, the nanny um, was distracted briefly. And uh, the window was slightly open. And the kid was climbed up on a radiator or a couch arm and, you know, just went out the window. And uh, oh, and uh, he landed on an adjoining roof of a parking garage, not on the sidewalk. Um, yeah, god awful. Uh, and then a, a few years ago, um, I met Eric Clapton's nephew. Um, the 50th reunion of Cream. Uh, well, not reunion of Cream, the 50th anniversary of Cream. And it was uh, Eric Clapton's nephew, because, you know, no longer, you know, had a, a son, uh, Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce's sons in the band. And doing all of the Cream's first album, and it was wonderful. And, you know, I got to talk to him after the fact, and then uh, talking to Eric Clapton's nephew, and I told him that uh, I was the first one, the first, you know, New York City cop that was over there. And he, he just grabbed me by the arm and tears started welling up in his eyes. And I said, I said, I only bring this up to you because all I wanted to tell you was being the first person there. I wanted to assure any of the family members who ever had any doubt. I said, the child was treated with the utmost dignity, respect, kindness that it could ever be given to a small angel who lost his life like that. And because, you know, some evil paparazzi photographer took a picture of the child's body and it went on the front page of the New York Post. I, I got in a lot of trouble for that. I said, other than that one filthy scumbag, you know, photographer, I said, every single cop that was over there stood there prayed and just pure dignity and respect and you know uh, and he just went into tears and he started hugging me and I said you know and I had no idea but he he was close to this child you know he was his older cousin and they played together so me telling him that it was you know so that's what I'm saying is all of these little things where you know my mission now is you know to You know, I just made this guy feel, you know, after, you know, 30, uh, yeah, 30 some odd years of him losing his cousin, that reassuring him, you know, if there was ever any doubt. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he thanked me over and over again. And, you know, he said, if you ever want to talk to Eric, and I'm like, no, I want you to tell Eric what I said. I said, it ain't about me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a mess, you know, I just wanted to, so it it was nice that I met this, you know, conduit that, you know, could get to Mr. Clapton and let him know that, you know, if there was ever any doubt. Because, you know, you wonder about shit like that, you know. Yeah. You know, because every once in a while, you know, you get these clowns, uh, you know, idiots. They put them on their frigging, they used to put them on Facebook, you know, EMTs and uh, you know, taking pictures of patients and, you know, you don't do that, man. You know, no. the, every human's a human, you know, dignity. So those doubts go in people's minds, you know, how is his body being treated? You know, and it's understandable. So, yeah, yeah so it's always cool that, you know, uh, I mean, what? go ahead.
1: I, I wanted to go back to, uh, you know, um your your music love and your traveling and uh you know some of the relationships you've formed over the years. But I also wanted to ask you really quick, you know, because you mentioned uh so, you know mayhem and um you know uh Mayhem the, the was great. Cherry Bomb, your cherry Char- uh charity Char- bomb charity bomb and, and, and those places. But what would you say? How would you uh you know, when did you get hip to the, like some of the Danny Wimmer festivals and how would you uh, rate your experience at those?
0: Okay. So, all right. So, um, okay. So mayhem fest, uh, was, um, uh, I think that ended in 2014 is when, uh, they pulled the plug on it. So, I don't know who, who ran. Uh, I don't. I really don't know who the producers were. You know, at that point, you know, I was just enjoying uh, going to these things. And, uh, you know, I knew uh, some of the hosts, you know, the ground host, Greg Gora, who was a wonderful uh, host uh, that brought me around, introduced me to all the people backstage. Um, I'm trying to think of what uh, the first Danny Wimmer Festival was. Um, because, all right, so there's rock. Okay. Rock on the range. I think that was my first one, uh, 2015 or maybe even 2014, uh, rock on the range. Um, so that's the one, you know, traveling out to Ohio. Uh, so I believe that that was the Danny Wimmer, uh, production. It wasn't, I I I don't think it was until. Okay, I'll back up a little bit here. Okay, so at uh, most of the Danny Wimmer Productions, um, Ron's world, uh, Ron's guitars, The, yeah. the uh, yeah. he custom paints uh, guitars. Okay, I first met Ron at Mayhem Fest in 2012. Um, so that's how I established uh, a nice relationship with Ron. Uh, he, he's an incredible artist. He's incredibly generous. Um, he is really a good, good, good hearted man, great sense of humor. And, you know, he took a lot of time to speak to me because I consider myself just a pain in the ass. So anybody that could tolerate me for more than five minutes has got to be an angel. <laughs> <laughs> so that makes you a saint.
1: Uh, um, yeah, we're on two and a half minutes, two and a half hours. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: sainthood. I could talk the balls (laughs) off a pool table, uh, is what what I I used to be told. But, uh, yeah, so it was Ron um, who, uh, and I think he was the first one that recommended whatever, um, you know, the next uh, festivals were. And, you know, where he was going, I was going, you know, if he was recommending it, you Mm -hmm. know. Uh, I'm not a big country fan. So, you know, Fonda's, you know, some of the country things, the bourbon and beyond and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge country fan. Um, so, uh, but you know, he's the one to, you know, turn me on to all of these various ones around the country. So, um, yeah. So then once, uh, yeah, once I, I got hooked into the first, uh, you know, Danny women production, um, you know, they, they were done great. Uh, they were really, really done great. Um, you know, because you have so much of the, you know, the interaction, uh, it, it's not just the stages and the music, uh, the things that I miss, uh, man, I truly miss. Um, and you know, it, it was all because of the, that freaking pandemic. Um, cause there used to be so many more meet the artist yeah um which was always i mean it was a great experience because you know these bands were contracted not only to get up there and do their 40 minute sets but you know go out and meet these fans and so uh you know you had the monster energy uh meet and greet with you know some of the guys would uh you know sign posters um you would have uh you know, hanging out with Jose Mangan uh and going to a private acoustic set. Yeah, you because know, these are the these are the things I, I experience. I you know, I did a I got to be at a private acoustic set with Corey Taylor. Um uh, uh, I got to be at a private acoustic set with Dorothy. Uh, mm. I got to be uh you know, I I've seen Jose Mangan. Uh he and I probably have our photo taken together uh about fifteen 20 times, you know, and the metal ambassador, man, he always remembers my name and probably the most gracious patient is celebrity and he's a celebrity because it's, you know, not just with me and, you know, like looking into my eyes and saying, how are you doing? And, you know, he goes, you know, I remember you got those, you know, those health issues from the trade center. Everything's okay. Just rocking on. And then you know somebody else will stop him. He always stops. He always takes a photo. And you know uh, he's 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 a real gracious guy. So it's great seeing him at all the the Danny Wimmer things. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Dan, and then I know that there was Danny Wimmer, Danny Hayes, uh, and now uh, Danny from Incarceration, uh, Dan Jansen. Dan Jansen, what a wonderful yeah. man. What a wonderful, yeah. wonderful man! Um,
1: I've got a long history with him. Awesome! What a
0: wonderful man! And uh, you know, because we were talking about that on the last day of incarceration, um, I was I was talking with uh, Dan Jansen, and we we were up there, and uh, he was saying, you know, from day one, he he would ask, you know, from the first day that I ever met him. He actually said, would you recommend anything? Is there something missing here that you would recommend? And, you know, I could take into consideration. Oh, yeah. I remember you know, we talked and, about and that. And I was like, yeah. well, who the hell am I? You know, I'm just the guy walking through the gate. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, he goes, you're a friendly guy. He goes, you stop, you're chatting. He goes, I'm just curious what, you know, uh, what you think of the place. And, you know, give us a review. You know, not an online review. He wanted to hear personal." Yeah. And, I, you know, I made a few, uh, you know, suggestions. And the carry-on suggestion, oh, you'll love, uh, I don't know if we ever discussed this, but the the Kevin Lyman Warp Tour used to have an AA tent, okay? It was called the water tent or the balloon tent. And yeah. there would be a white tent off in the distance with yellow balloons hanging up from it. And it was called the water tent because it had coolers of, cold water, and basically it was the secret meeting place of people in recovery. And I said, what a brilliant idea. You know, um, because you know, I was in recovery.
2: Yeah,
0: A lot of my friends would say, how could you go to those concerts and and not drink? I said, well, I, I after my first couple of festivals, I used to say, how the hell did I ever function at a festival if I did drink? Yeah, exactly. you know? yeah me and, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember I, I was with you there when we were talking to Dan and mentioning about the Sober Tent, because that was the 20-year anniversary. That was when we met, too.
2: Yeah, you know? and,
0: and I said, listen, it, it's just so simple. It's just a tent. I said, it costs you nothing i said reach out to local aa groups and say hey we'll give you a free 3-day pass if you come in man the tent do three meetings a day and you know and just have a good place to hang and chill with people in recovery i said who wouldn't jump on that as a as a aa service you know i said yeah. You know, it, it costs nothing and the reward is immense. Because if you could stop one single person, you know, from, from you know, completely relapsing and we're not talking just alcohol, there's people that had, you know, serious drug issues that are, you know, in, in, in a fragile state of recovery, um, you know, what a great place for them to run to escape to. You Know that they may uh, be having a real hard time. You know, this song reminds them of you know, uh, you know, losing a loved one and now they want to feel like getting high. No, run to that tent over there, you know, yeah. get rescued. And so, it's so simple and so, it's such a great thing, you know, and uh, you know, give them some free water. Uh, yeah. you know, next year I'll whisper in his ear, I want free. Big gulps. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice.
0: Well, um,
1: I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get Dan Jansen to, uh, to watch this, uh, interview. You know, he's, he's, a,
0: he's a wonderful man. He really is. Um, yeah. Real good. Real good dude. When, when somebody, you know, it's, it's very important, very important thing. Uh, I learned this as a cop, <laughs> you know, um, when somebody talks to you, if they're looking straight into your eyes, unless they're a really good fucking liar, uh, when they're, you know, looking straight into your eyes and you're looking straight back into their eyes, you know, when they're being sincere and, you know, from day one, the man just, you know, reeked of sincerity. You know, he, he, he really wanted to know, you know, what do you think? What do you think I could do better? What do you think I could remove that is not so, you know, not so cool? You know, I mean the guy just open for these great suggestions that you know, well, I think are great suggestions. Um, but yeah. no, just open to an open-minded person and and he and he's providing, you know, just an and entertainment sure. experience. An entertainment yeah. experience. And that's what I love about all of these festivals. Now the pandemic just destroyed though you know the the real cool stuff when they they used to have that uh the record tent uh oh i forgot the name of a big popular record chain but they would have the tent at the, the festivals the fye um, or something like that yeah yeah yeah. fye yeah for your entertainment that's right yeah. and so if you went in and bought you know the uh the vinyl or you bought the cd you know, Rob Zombie's gonna be signing at two o'clock. So you know, if you buy it, you get a wristband, and then you know, at two o'clock when Rob Zombie's coming to sign it, you come, you pick up your albums. You don't have to walk around with it all day. Come, pick it up, sign it. You know, he'll sign it for you, and then you know, you could store it somewhere. And that was just so cool, man, because I met so many, so many of uh, musicians. Uh, that wound up recognizing me because you know i would go to the festival i'd go to rock on the range you know next thing next thing you know i'm at uh louder than life in louisville kentucky or well you know i'm not going chronologically but they would see me at carolina rebellion welcome to rockville carolina rebellion rock on the range louder than life and they're like you again you know with because i would just keep going because i enjoyed meeting them and but i I would always tell them a different joke each, each time, you know, I would just have these guys fucking laughing, you know? And so, you know, next thing you know, is, uh, I bring my son to a, a hate breed concert in, uh, midtown Manhattan in times square, uh, just a couple of years ago. And, you know, doing the meet and greet (laughs) is right after the pandemic, you know? So first time meet and greet and my son never been to a rock concert in his life, you know, him and his girlfriend. And, uh, I kept moving to the back of the line, kept moving to the back of the line. He's like, he's like, dad, what are you doing? He goes, we we would have been done by now. I says, no, when you do the meet and greet, you always stand at the very back. He's like, why? I said, because if there's people behind you, you always get moved along within 10 seconds, move along. If you're the last in line, you could at least have about 30 seconds chatting with the band or whatever. So they start laughing. They say, you know, a scam for everything, right, dad? (laughs) But by the time we get up to the table, the guys from Hate Breed jump up, they're like, holy shit, look at this TK is here. They come running from around the table. And this this shocked me. They're throwing their arms around me, you know. <laughs> hey, look, it's TK. <laughs> and my son is just like taking aback. He goes, he goes, who's supposed to meet who with these things? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they they let me hang at the side of the stage with them uh, at a, at an event in uh, it was uh, it was Carolina Rebellion in twenty seventeen. Um, yeah. But you know I I had you know I I've been up to see them in Boston when they played with Dropkick Murphys uh, St Patrick's Week. Uh, you know so you know I just have that stupid face and they're like oh here he comes again. But you know I don't I'm not a stalker. I just walk up. I'd say a few fucking lines to get them laughing. And then i just turn around and whiz away. <laughs> They're like, there he goes again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. I'm like herpes, you know. I keep coming back as much as you hate me. I just keep coming back. It's a necessary thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. Well, Tom, man, I really appreciate uh, uh, getting on here with you, man. I know we could go on and on. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, well we'll do a part two if you want to do you know yeah yeah
1: we'll do a part two maybe after uh, uh, after louder in life or something we'll have uh have a little bit more stories or something to, to share. I mean I still have a bunch of things on here, but uh the day's getting getting going man and I need to
0: to get get to it. Um but uh I drank two of these okay during during our little sit-down and I haven't hit the bathroom yet once. Ah <laughs> oh, man, good for you, man. I, I I peed
1: in a in a Gatorade bottle under the table while I was talking to you. So, <laughs> but hey, man, always good good talking with you. Always good to see you. We'll 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 be keeping in touch. Hopefully, connect it louder.
0: Uh, yes, I'm I'm hoping to get out there. I didn't get my tickets yet, uh, because I I got a no, move I I've got a move coming up, so. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm. I'm hoping. I. I already. I got an email from uh, Danny Wimmer's uh, Enterprises this morning that I'm a winner of uh, a pre-party the day before louder at that uh, amusement park next door. But, oh, nice! Um, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't schedule anything. To get out there yet uh because this metallica thing came up in between um but you know i'll i'll uh come hella high water i've always made it to every festival no matter what (laughs) you know so i will figure something out and i will get my ass out there sounds Um, good we both man. (laughs) yeah because you know it'll be a good decompression after i I move into my new apartment and uh, everything gets squared away and it's, uh, it's the last festival of the year. Right. So I got to make an appearance.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so.
0: All right, buddy. Well, I'm going to sign us off here, but, uh, we'll, right. we'll definitely keep in touch. Best to you and your family. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting them at, uh, Sonic temple. And, uh, and again, at the uh, you got a wonderful family there, Bill. Uh, you got good friends, good people. And, uh, glad to be part of that little circle. It's a lot of fun.
1: So I really yeah. appreciate
0: it, brother. Thank you.
1: Thank you, my friend. You too. You take care. All right. All the best. Thank you for listening once again to today's boondoggle radio show. Please be sure to check out our website, domaincle.com or today's boondoggle.com for more shows and check out our archives. Follow us on social media at Today's Boondoggle on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for more information about this podcast. And please support us on www.anchor.fm forward slash Today's Boondoggle, as well as on our GoFundMe and Venmo. Be sure to subscribe, comment, download, and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Spreaker, and all the other podcast platforms out there. Please email us with any questions, suggestions, and comments via todaysboondoggle at gmail.com. Leave us some five-star reviews and help spread the word. Thanks again for listening.
2: for tuning into this week's today's boondoggle. Domain Cleveland Entertainment is a veteran-owned and operated cornucopia of nonsensical shenanigans. You can find interesting interviews, music news and information, and just about everything else in between. Thank you again for supporting, sharing, and tuning into today's boondoggle.